everybody! Welcome back to the Greymalk and Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. We are going to be finishing up the ridiculous and wonderful uh, Magneto Submariner team-up from the early 1970s with issue uh, 104 of the Fantastic Four today. And as always, I am so thrilled by the level of talent and, uh, and professionalism of the people who are willing to come on my silly little podcast with me. Uh, it is such an honor to be meeting Jay Holtham and uh, and uh, Sean Hill, uh, Sean Damien Hill, as well as having Stephanie Williams returning to the show. Uh, I will save my uh, enthusiasm for a moment, but let me uh, let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know your name, your pronouns, uh, where we might know you from. And today's intro question is: uh, What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on an elevator? Uh, let's start with Jay Holtham. Hi, Jay. Hey, how's it going? Glad glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jay Holtham. Pronouns are he him. Uh, uh, you might know me from uh, writing on such shows as Cloak and Dagger uh, and Jessica Jones uh, and The Handmaid's Tale, uh, as well as some comic books that we shall discuss. Uh, and the worst thing that ever happened to me in an elevator is I got stuck in a very small, very dirty elevator at my old job for like an hour and a half. It was not a lot of fun, though I did not have to do any work for an hour and a half. And that was cool. <laughs> nightmare elevator being trapped on an elevator is one of my worst nightmares uh jay has recently worked on the incredible series a uh, bishop war college as well as some other things we'll talk about uh as uh, and on that series the uh art was done by mr sean damian hill hi sean welcome to the show hi thank you for having me thank you so much um uh, my name is sean hill uh sean damian hill is what i put on my website and uh pronouns are he him um i've been working on comics for for a bit bit of time now mostly in indies uh just kind of working on books like um with uh david walker's um uh the hated uh comic book and then uh of course with with jay on bishop war college with marvel and uh yeah just just kind of bouncing about here and there uh what's the worst thing that ever happened to you on an elevator sean uh so <laughs> Funny thing is, like I've I've had a pretty good track record on elevators until about two weeks ago. Uh, I was on the elevator of a metro, and I got stuck at the very bottom of one when and I I just couldn't get the doors open. I was on there for about like ten fifteen minutes, and then I just tried to like use the little emergency phone they have there, and it's a pretty dingy end of elevator, and it turned out that wasn't working too well. So I literally had to try to pry the door open. And, and and get myself off there. Um, of course, the station manager came all late and like, oh, are you okay? Like, no. But um, but yeah, that was the worst thing that ever happened. I was I had a great record until then. But I know a, I know a local guy here in Salt Lake City who is an elevator technician, and he's like the only one for like a hundred miles. So anytime something like that happens, they'll call him. But if he's like a three hour drive away, man, you're stuck. <laughs> yeah, that's always my nightmare. Uh, and then let's go over to uh, Stephanie Williams next. I had to. I had the pleasure of having Stephanie on the show. We also got to meet at FlameCon, where Stephanie joined me for our delicious mutant fashion review. Uh, I'm still laughing about Val Cooper because of you, <laughs> Stephanie. It's great to see you. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Oh, Val. Um, but again, Stephanie Williams. Uh, you folks might know me from I don't know memes on Twitter using. Uh, the X-Men animated series or official comic books like Nubia and the Amazons and some uh, Marvel stuff like the new nightshade and 
bringing Storm into her magic era. Um, have I ever been? Yes, I was stuck on an elevator once my freshman year um, of school and I missed my chemistry exam because of that. And I had to repeat chemistry again. Got an A the second semester, but um, I'm blaming failing that one, that, that first time on being stuck on the elevator. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm a former Marvel Comics handbook writer and the host of this show. I, uh, I've only been stuck on an elevator once. I was 18. My high school band, weirdly, went to Hawaii. It was this trip that we like saved up for for like four years. We're in Hawaii. We played a bunch of concerts. And one night we're like going out for a giant luau and all the students like ran down the stairs. But there were like six of us that were like, we're going to take the elevator. And then the elevator got stuck and we were on there two and a half hours and missed the luau. It was super frustrating. And I remember we just kind of played games and had fun. Like it, it wasn't that stressful, but uh, ultimately it was a rather unpleasant experience. Uh, we're going to talk about a uh, thing going crazy on an elevator in today's issue later on, which is <laughs> where this uh this comes from. We'll talk about the issue in the latter half, but uh, first of all, I'm really excited uh, to see all three of you, and I have lots of questions for each. Anytime I'm welcoming someone new to the show, I like to ask a little bit about your origin story, if you're willing to share uh, your uh, your kind of history as a comics fan into a comics professional, if you're willing to share a little bit. Uh, Sean, do you want to start that one for us? I would love to hear your origin story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. It's um so... Like, I got into comics because I had a mom and a grandfather that were super into comics. Um, and uh, I was really little, um, barely able to read. And I would try to get my mom to kind of, like, I would go with them to the comic book store. And then I would try to get them to read my comics for me. And um, then I distinctly remember my mom getting to a point where she was just like, oh, man, this is too much. You got to read your own. And um, that kind of actually push me in the direction of just kind of like, man, I, I really got to attention in school, even though I'm like in kindergarten or something and really just trying to read these books. And so I got really, really obsessed with it and, and, you know, um, reading pretty much every comic I can get my hands on. And, um, even leaving like some of my mom's books and like my grandfather's books, his stuff was a little, he would get reprints of older stuff like older Dick Tracy and, and Will Eisner stuff. And, um, I, this, I didn't think about like actually wanting to, to draw or do comics until I saw that, that old, um, that old Spike Lee, Rob Liefeld commercial. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it just never occurred to me. There's like, no, there's a person that has to sit there and draw these images and um, until until that commercial, and I was just like, "Whoa!" I mean, that weird button fly is weird, but I would love to draw <laughs> these comics. Like, and it, it it just fascinated me ever since then. I've been obsessed ever since then. You are a uh, a really fantastic artist. We'll be talking about some of your art style and recent work uh, recently. And you were just telling me before we started, you've been drawing all day. Uh, how do you form your schedule as an artist? Uh, I, I assume you get uh, wrist cramps at the very least. <laughs> I used to. Um, I I'm a little bit more careful now. Like I, I put like absurd amounts of like pencil grips on everything now. <laughs> like everything I use, um, I've I figured out a. a little while ago that you know if you're gripping on a pencil or a pen or whatever too tightly forever it's gonna crack your hand up so uh, i just try to make sure that my my 
grip on these pencils and pens are as loose and as, as comfortable as I can get it. Um, try to take breaks. Um, you know, we're going to get into Bishop War College in a few minutes, but page one, issue one is a giant image of Bishop screaming it again. Uh, I remember opening that first issue and thought, oh, okay, like this artist came to play. We are ready to go. Uh, but I'll, uh, I'll save some more praise for a minute from now. Uh, uh, Jay, I'd love to hear some of your origin story. Sure, sure. Um, I similarly started when I was really young. Um, my brother kind of got me into comics originally. Uh, he's an artist, and so there were comic books all around. Um, when I was a uh, like four or five years old, I read the Star Wars comic book. Uh, once I deconstructed a Buck Rogers comic, uh, cut out all of the images, and then rearranged them to tell a completely different story. Uh, go figure. Uh, that was a, a thing that I did when I was like four. Uh, but it got real serious for me uh, with the comics when I. Uh, when I was 10, I moved to from Brooklyn to New Jersey uh, and, you know, from like Bushwick, Brooklyn to very, very, very white New Jersey and felt like a real outsider. And that's about the time that I discovered the New Mutants. And I always say they basically saved my life um, that it was a comic book about kids and weirdos and outcasts. And it just really spoke to me. So I was uh, real deep uh, in the sort of like midway through the first run of the new mutants book, uh, the Sienkiewicz era. And then I was, a the Madeline prior years of X-Men, uh, was, was real deep in all of that. Uh, and then I've just recently kind of come back into that and luckily have found my way into writing comics, which is, you know, literal dream come true territory. Uh, I want to ask you one of my preliminary questions here. You write a lot of different types of things. You write plays, you write television scripts, you write podcasts, you write comic scripts. How do you shift from one thing to another? How do you get in a mindset for a particular format? Uh, I mean, one, for me at its core, it's all the same stuff. It's all character and story and impact. Like, what am I trying to say with this thing? Uh, the biggest trick is just figuring out like what form is the best version of the story or what's the best ver what's the best version of this story for this format um and that's a different kind of sort of head to to get into um and usually it's just thinking about it a lot like it's just a lot of thinking about it, a lot of thinking about how the story is going to unfold and how i see it unfolding and like all of that um while mostly just focusing on like who wants what what are they trying to do and what do i need to tell the audience for them to understand what they're trying to do, you know? There's a, a difference between a six-page story and a five-issue limited series, absolutely. Yes. I was uh, I was really surprised to learn you wrote a lot on Jessica Jones as mm -hmm. well as Handmaid's Tale, uh, where you're also one of the, the co-executive producers, correct? Yes. But you, yes. You've, uh, you're really involved in some uh, media that I, you know, when you're watching television, you don't often pay attention to the writer of the show unless you're specifically mm -hmm. looking for them. Uh, but you've got an impressive history. Those are some of my favorite, uh, although trauma-dense, really powerful, <laughs> incredible storytelling uh with complicated women which is one of my favorite genres <laughs> mm -hmm. same 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 i mean listen i love writing uh for and about women and i love just sort of uh telling those kind of stories and trying to tell them the best that i can uh with my you know limitations as a as a male um and just I don't know. I'm just drawn to interesting characters and I've been very like my writing career, my TV writing career uh, has been great. And I've been very lucky to get to work with some great writers on some really terrific stories. 
Uh, we were just establishing right before we started recording that although you and Sean have worked together, this is your first time actually speaking. Yes, <laughs> which is it crazy is. To yeah. Me. yeah. Uh, it's wild. Yeah, we did the whole comic book. Uh, and sometimes I'll like be on Zooms with artists that I'm working with, but usually it's just sort of over email. Uh, Stephanie, what's it like being a busy, active, working professional? <laughs> you are uh, you are a busy woman. I'm seeing your name all over the place these days. Um, it's it's exhausting. Um, I wish I could lie to you and tell you that it's not, but it is. <laughs> and then add motherhood on top of that. Um, I don't know what is wrong with me. I think a little insanity must be in the mix because why would I do this to myself? <laughs> even uh, even traveling from con to con while trying to maintain a writing schedule and uh, taking care of your kids, it's a lot to balance. Um, it is. Uh, I could use some of Reed Richards' uh, stretch abilities. I can tell you that much. He has the creepiest superpowers. Choose someone else. <laughs> <laughs> I need it so that when I say, hey, what is all that bumping and jumping going on? Like, I don't have to actually leave my desk to go find out. I can just <laughs> reach my hand out and um, tell the boy to stop. Let's uh, let's give you multiple man's powers, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> that would be even better. <laughs> uh, so I just have some kind of isolated questions for each of you. We'll kind of see where the conversation goes. And if you have questions for each other, that's also completely fine. Uh, Stephanie, let me start with you. Uh, you recently did a Storm Scarlet Witch team up. You referenced this earlier, Storm entering her magic era. Uh, Storm is the descendant of some mystics, and it's something that's not often picked up in the comics. Uh, Annie Nascenti recently brought it up. Chris Claremont tends to bring it up from time to time. Uh, but Storm as a magician uh, was a really lovely thing to see. It's a really fun story. Tell us a little bit about your work with Storm. Yeah. Um, so before writing for Storm, I wrote about Storm a lot. Um, I even talked about her on a podcast that I used to do called Missy Night's Uninformed Afro. So Storm and I go way back, like to the laundromat, um, playing Marvel versus Capcom and just typhoon, typhoon, typhoon. So um, when I had the opportunity to uh, write this story with her and Scarlet Witch, it just made sense to tap into um, her magic and just kind of bring that back to the forefront. I had just recently read um, the four issue mini of the magic series that Claremont wrote uh, came out in the 80s, I believe. So it was just kind of perfect timing. Um, so with that, I was like, well, if she's kicking it with Wanda, then she better be tapping into her magic. So I think I pitched the idea the same day I got the email and then I had the script done by that Monday. And I think I got the email on Thursday. So it was a very quick, I did a little magic myself essentially um, to get that done so quickly. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. And Christopher Allen draws a gorgeous storm. My word, uh, just really, really great. Absolutely. Um, and then see her in clothes outside of her suit too, was just a really great touch. So um, he really knocked that out the park. Uh, you've also been working on Nightshade uh, in different formats, working with the incredible artist uh, Hector Barros. And I've had Hector on my show a long, long time ago before they were working professionally in comics. Uh, tell us a little bit about your Nightshade work and working with Hector. Um, Hector is amazing. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's the whole thing of if you ever get asked to create a character, then what character would you create? Um, so I finally got that opportunity and it almost sent me um, you know, until a tailspin, because like, how do you do that? Like, how do you make somebody who will possibly be memorable um, and also relevant to the MCU? Well, not MCU, but Marvel Universe. I don't know, MCU too, the way things are going. But anyway, um, 
I thought about Nightshade and how she was a character that I always was interested in, um, giving her background. You know, you have this genius who, um, you know, went to went the path that she could because she didn't have any other um, opportunities um, available to her. So I thought, well, if we're talking about legacy, it doesn't always have to be one that is pure and quote unquote good. Nightshade deserves one too, um, now that she is kind of like this anti-hero. So that's kind of how the thought process began with that. Um, and then next thing I knew, um, Logan Lewis was uh, a character that came to be um, a young cousin of Tilda Johnson um, who decided to pick up the mantle of Nightshade after getting her powers accidentally. Well, it's not a her, it's actually her fault she got her powers, but I mean, um, you know, some of my favorite superhero origins are when people um, do things because they feel is the right thing to do um, selfishly or unselfishly, um, and she kind of gets her powers that way. And Hector working with um, working with Hector to just kind of come up with um, her look, the night set, the nightshade suit, all of that um, was just Hector is great. Um, the incorporation of the uh, ISO eight compound and just how that looks and uh, the way they, he put that in um, her suit was just it was everything. Uh, Hector's done a piece on my wall. Uh, I, I sent the, them a big congratulations after your... I, I also love when someone pulls a toy out of the toy box and really uses them. Your use of Modom was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I said, let's bring Modom back. Um, I am all for rehabilitating or bringing back women if I can. Um, I spent a lot of time reading Golden, Silver Age, Bronze Age um, comics. Um, so Modam was always somebody who was kind of interesting to me. And I was like, oh, well, she's not with us anymore, but maybe we can bring her back. So kind of playing into that whole Captain America, uh, give Nightshade a little bit more ties to his universe um, or whatever just kind of made sense to bring her in. We've got uh, we've got big plans for Modoc in the new year on my show, but I'll save that announcement for another time. But we're going to talk about Modoc and Modom and all the others. Uh, it'll be a fun episode. Uh, Jay, a question for you. I would love to hear a little bit about how Bishop War College uh, came to be and why is uh, Fenris the funniest and worst villains to write in comics? <laughs> oh, Fenris. Oh, God. God, I hate them so much. Um it came to be uh, Marvel had approached me like I'd done a little bit of a few comics bits, some uh, Marvel Unlimited, and I'd work with the editor, Sarah Brunstad, on uh, Sam Wilson, Captain America story. Uh, so she approached me uh, to say we want to do a Bishop book uh, and they wanted to do use some of the more recent mutants had been introduced uh, and do keep doing this uh, war training that he's doing. Uh, and so I dove in on that. And when we were thinking about villains, um, Fenris, uh, they're so <laughs> terrible. Nazis are just bad. No one likes Nazis. Uh, so that makes them sort of fun, but they're so superior. And like they live, you know, in the Krakoa era of, you know, everyone's getting along. And then there are these two um, uh, less than less than generous human mutant people wandering around freely and i just felt like we want to we will let them be the chaos agents they are um uh, and so uh that's how they got slotted in there but the probably the biggest thing that i really wanted to do with it was to send uh bishop on a little slightly timey-wimey alternate university journey uh to uh to face a different kind of sort of a different x-men in a different world 
uh, and have him ask himself the question of like, who am I really, you know? I want to ask you more about that, but let me give a question to Sean really quickly. Uh, one of the things that makes uh, Bishop War College really shocking, but also very special, uh, the metaphor of uh, the oppressed being represented in the X-Men is a story that we see spun on its head a million times over, right? But you took, uh, uh -huh. you took a very unique approach to both of you by taking Bishop into a timeline where if I if I'm interpreting it correctly, the all of the mutants are people who are of color and all of the X-Men are of color as well. So, Sean, you got this kind of unique opportunity to take the main X-Men characters and redesign them as people of color, uh, which uh, I, I would love to hear what that was like for you. What an incredible opportunity. Yeah, um, that that was actually an incredible amount of fun. Um, it was uh, it was kind of like a. Um, Personally, for me, um, it was sort of like uh, in my family. Like, uh, there's a couple of artists that 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 are artists. Like, my wife went to school for media arts and animation, and um, when I went to college, I wasn't thinking about doing comics at all. I was trying to be a painter, so I was, I was going for fine art. And so, I would get mad jealous, like when she get like get classes about designing their own versions of the X Men and kind of reinterpreting um what their their mutant powers are and why they look the way they do and stuff like that so i felt like really vindicated after years <laughs> um, so the honest like I, I was super nervous at first when i was trying to um figure out how these characters were going to look um but i had come to this place where i wanted them to feel sort of familiar to the time that Bishop was introduced to the X-Men, like around the nineties and stuff. And, um, but at the same time, um, reapproach them in a way of like, what, what would Cyclops be like if he was number one, if he was black, but two, if he still maintained more or less the same, um, ideals about mutant kind and if it was still more or less like like i am like the the main guy the main leader of the x-men to have to keep all these other um different characters in check from time to time so um i just kind of wanted these characters to just still kind of feel like those x-men from the 90s but at the same time just reinterpret it in a way that would seem real to them like i i, I think the most the most thought I had to give was to Beast. Um, I was just going to mention Beast specifically. Your design for that character. I mean, a lot of the characters have uh, you know textured hair and and variants on their costumes, but Beast stands out really to me as just a distinctively very different character. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I, because I would just he would just have to be like I uh, I was I had to look at like I had to think of like every um i guess scientific figure who's black that i would that, that that i knew of that like how would they be if they if they were in a world that were you know were they're mutants they're finally in the place where they're not fear for their lives every second and and i would just have to think well maybe maybe the beast from jim lee's era probably won't work completely so that that i had to rethink quite a bit um actually all the way up till to the point i was drawing the page like i changed his hair like right there on the page like i think i was gonna originally give him more of a more of an afro but 
I was just like, no, it's it's going to be Lux, like thick, heavy Lux to kind of make the character feel like he's got some weight. Um, and yeah, it was just as far as natural hair, though, I really wanted to stick to natural hair for everybody. Um, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me if like nothing against anyone who, 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 who prefers to straighten their hair, but it just didn't make any, any sense to me if, if they were going to take on any like um, European or Eurocentric design choices to, 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 to represent themselves. If, if most mutants, if not all are black and they're in the place of taking care of themselves, being in the place of peace and, you know, more or less being like in a, in a place of economic strength and that kind of thing. It, it just didn't make sense. So I just kind of stuck to as many natural hairstyle choices as I could and try to stuck. I, I tried to remain like, I look at all kinds of things to keep myself inspired to keep drawing, but when designing those X-Men or redesigning them, I, I, narrow myself down to kind of only looking at like traditional West African clothing and jewelry and stuff like that. And then I would kind of skew their, their nineties looks toward that as much as I could without, without losing sense of who these characters are. Jay gave you a lot of really beautiful stuff to draw, but you can draw Cam Long's uh, big monster form all day, every day. (laughs) I'm really into it. Uh, Jay, I'd love to hear, I, when you're pitching a series like this, you got to take your main character and send them on the journey where they're going to learn the lesson and go through a change. Uh, you also have all the students uh, from mm-hmm. Amass to Armor and the others who are also kind of on their own journey. Uh, but this storyline where Bishop is initially a, an extremely serious military leader uh, and him kind of learning through this journey to another dimension, a little bit of heart. And Tempo's at his side. Tempo's one of my all-time favorites, of course. Uh, tell me a little bit about Earth-63 and the Bishop uh, journey that you uh, put together for us. I mean, that was exactly the journey. You know, Bishop has that reputation of being uh, a hard ass. And he's got such a, like, varied history of turns of hero versus villain but, you know, it's all sort of shot through with this, like, single-minded focus. Uh, and, you know, what I really wanted to embrace with it or just sort of dig deeper is the trauma of that, of the trauma of the world that he came from, the trauma of all that he experienced and, like, really, in some ways, make him confront that by showing him the opposite, showing him a world that had none of that trauma and a version of him that had none of that trauma uh, to because personally, I am always fascinated by the question of nature versus nurture, free will versus predestination, uh, predetermination, and like the idea of Bishop having to ask, "Could I be a different way?" You know, the, that's the sort of the emotional core. Is at the beginning of this, this the book, he is writing these students so hard with that fear uh, that he grew up with, that fear that you know a lot of mutants have grown up with, which is that sense of you know the world is going to turn on us sooner or later. And you have to be ready for that. You guys have uh, a two-page spread in the first issue. I'll cover quickly where Bishop's having a dream. There's barely any words. And he's walking mm-hmm. down. He's a child. He's walking down a hallway 
where in every mirror is a different reflection, a different version of himself. Then he opens a door and a big pile of skulls cascades down on him and, and Bishop wakes up with a scream. Uh, I love what you're capable of doing with just a, a few pages of no no dialogue even, uh, but it's a great setup for what's to come. Uh, please continue. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, Sean knocked that out of the park and like that was that is that emotional core. And then the, the goal was to, by the end of it that he's like, OK, guys protecting your home isn't just about the people who are coming to kill it. It is also about, this is something that's important to you. This is something that matters to you. Uh, and I like that journey. And for earth 63, you hit it the nail on the head when you said earlier, uh, when you were talking about, you know, for so long, the X-Men have been used as a metaphor for various, basically for racism, you know, and for people who are on the outside and for all sorts of sort of oppressed and marginalized groups. Uh, and for a long time, it felt a little uneasy with me. Uh, I always think about watching First Class and having a scene with Nicholas Holt and uh, Jennifer, what's her name, Lawrence? Yes. Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique, uh, these two very, very attractive, very white. And I think in that scene, they were both very blonde people talking about how much of an outsider they were and no one was how did they how are they ever going to fit into society and i was like eh, this 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 may not be the best medium for this message and so i really wanted to conceive of a world where where honestly where mutants were the marginalized people of our world uh and that it was uh, I think the the sort of sleight of hand, the story sleight of hand I use is that the the X gene uh, is tied to, like genetically tied to the genes for race. So that's why it's primarily in people of color. Um, but then also wanting to create it as a utopia, as an idea that they, as a group, they came forward and like have built this world that is in a better place uh, than ours. Um, in part, sort of fulfilling that dream, like really putting Charles Xavier as like literal Mount Martin Luther King who doesn't die and who actually did build a better world. Uh, and yeah, that was just fun. It was fun to think of. It was fun to like write those descriptions and then to let Sean uh, run with it. You know, it's always, it's always good when you get to write uh blackity black, black, black in a script. <laughs> I just feel like that's what these characters are. And then see, to see him just like really run with it uh, and really invest in that world. Uh, as a long-term fan of X-Men books and, and comic books in general, I'm really impressed with the level of storytelling. Writers like you and uh, Victor Lavelle and Steve Orlando, you guys will use a lot of characters that you're passionate about. Uh, and their story is not front and center, but you take them on a journey. You do some things with tempo in this series. Mm -hmm. And the way that like Victor Lavelle does some things with Necra or Steve Orlando with Darcy Lewis, uh, just mm -hmm. something that come to mind. And it's not front and center on the page, but if you read it, you can see the story present. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work with Tempo. She uh, she goes on a journey here too. She goes on a journey of her own. And like, it's interesting, particularly with the mutants, but I think this is also a sort of a general Marvel thing. Uh, I've run into it with some other characters that uh, I'm working on uh, for, future, for future stuff. Uh, Marvel characters and superheroes tend to have these like unbelievably traumatic and screwed up and terrible backgrounds that they never deal with are never addressed. And like, especially with some of these smaller characters, like coming to tempo, you know, just really like reading about her and reading back at her issues and reading back at like her dad died in front of her. And like, she lost all these things. I thought like, okay, let's, 
let's again dig into that let's dig into the inevitability of that let's dig into you know uh as someone who's lost people myself that i i've loved and cared for like the the attraction of getting more time with them uh particularly for someone who manipulates time yeah. uh and so like I don't know. That's for me, that is always the entry point Um, in some ways. Like what's your in a sort of glib, weird way, but like what's this character's trauma and how can I exploit that for storytelling? uh, And so that they actually successfully deal with it as well. Like that gives you a nice character arc. Like if I was writing Batman, it would just be about Batman going to therapy and like, talking out his issues for the first time ever uh, so that by the end of it, he's maybe less willing to punch so many poor people. <laughs> I love, uh, I love getting books monthly, but my favorite thing is when the final issue comes out, going back and reading the whole thing and Bishop War college as a five issue series is fantastic. And Sean, if it's all right as the gay guy in the room to say, you draw the hottest Bishop. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank we, you. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. I, anyone who's into men, I think you can look at these pictures of Bishop and go, okay. <laughs> uh, really, really great job. Uh, I was just looking again at your image, Sean, as, uh, as, as well of uh, the, what, uh, I forgot the, the name of the bad guys, the, the human council on Earth 63. Uh, 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 the, the human liberation yeah. front. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, yeah, that, that full page shot you did of those guys is also incredible. Uh, Sean, I, I, have a, I have a separate question for you. And if you're not able to talk about this, you can simply say pass. Whatever happened to Luke Cage City of Fire? Oh, it's, uh, well, like, essentially it got canceled. I mean, I think everyone knows that, but um, from Marvel's standpoint, it was just, like, logistical reasons. I think, I don't even think that was the only title that got canceled. It was, but um, I forget the other one, because I just, I was I was too shocked. I was like, what? But um, it was, yeah, it was on a, it was supposed to be a three-issue miniseries. Um, I was literally drawing issue three. Um, I was kind of approaching like the midway point and, um, and then it, 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 I just got the email that it was just like, yeah, like we're, we're not able to do this right now. Um, like you still got paid, I hope. Yeah. 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 Everybody still got paid. Um, they even like, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say, but they, they gave us more money than we were supposed but, um, it just, it sounded like for them, they were having just issues it's disheartening to work so it's disheartening to work so hard on something and then have it uh have it shelved like that that's a that's a rough thing to go through oh man i had my whole heart set on it i was i was i was crushed i was like oh but um it was like like i remember it being pushed back a couple times and but i never thought it was going to get canceled though um and that was just like and i couldn't completely understand why because i don't understand completely the like the logistics of, of just publishing and distribution, but I was like, um, I, like I was just assuming any kind of reason was 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 like why they canceled it. I was like, is it is it is it, is it like you know all the um what's, what was the guy that was being um tried for for murder or whatnot? Um, and he was being let go. I forget his name. He's I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, uh, I thought that even had something to do with it, but it, it turns out it didn't. They didn't care about any of that. Um, 
So uh, to, to this day, I'm not completely sure, but it was largely just technical stuff as far as I know. Um, but I was like, yeah, uh, I hope, you know, they change their mind on that and bring it back at some point. I was like, it was I, a great story. Was a great I story. also geez, throw my wedding ring on the floor. We'll edit that out. <laughs> Honey, if you're listening, <laughs> it's not intentional. Uh, uh, I also really loved your Blue Marvel story with uh, Cody Ziegler. Uh, really, really beautifully done. And Jay, your story with uh, Falcon and Misty Knight on their date is also fantastic. Uh, it's so wonderful to see people of color doing characters of color. I mean, you guys you should just write and draw all of the characters, but it's uh, I love that we're living in an age where we can talk to three working professionals who are working so hard and doing so many great things with, uh, with characters of color that have only been written by, uh, you know, and drawn by white people primarily. Uh, it's also really great to see you all using so many queer characters uh, as a focus in your stories as well. The uh, the Cam Long or a Charles relationship is adorable uh, and very millennial, <laughs> uh, but but uh, great work. I, if if you guys have any comments on those stories, I'd love to hear them. I mean, writing for Cam and Aura, it, it was it all came for me from the same place. Of there are all these great characters that don't get a real chance to uh, to show what they can do they don't get other stories you know vita had been doing new mutants and had introduced all these other characters uh that just hadn't appeared again and i felt like that's a shame like they should they are part of this world let's use them um and that's always sort of my goal is you know i want the, i do want the anything that i do to reflect as much of the world that i live in as possible and you know what queer people are part of that people of color all all sorts of people are in that so uh i definitely always want to try to expand the the lens as much as possible uh all right stephanie williams you and Steve Fox got to do some X-Men backup stories for the X-Men Infinity comics. We got a brand new team of mutants that everybody was so excited about. And then they got crushed and ripped in half. <laughs> the Hellfire Gala. And uh, the only solve was you and Steve's beautiful stories uh, about the X-Men backups for the X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic. My favorite of which was Frenzy. Uh, such a beautiful story. And I know it was very well received. And I'm going to give a quick personal thank you. I would have been so devastated if the Krakoan era ended and Sammy the Squid Boy never made it back. But you gave him his one panel that I needed so badly. Uh, let me hear a little bit about your work with Steve. Um, Steve is great to work with. I actually threatened him to not bring Sammy back. And he didn't listen. So there's that. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, it was really fun. Um, we kind of split it up. And I was like, I don't care who else I write. Just let me write the frenzy story because uh, that is something I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Um, just just as Jay mentioned, like a lot of these characters have really tragic origins. And for her, um, I was like, I want to touch on that, but I want to touch on it in a way that shows, um, you know, it's not she's a she is the way she is because this happened, but more so she's the way this is because it happened, but she is allowed to be vulnerable. Um, so, um, payback or pop up, whatever his name is, um, the green guy, the high green, uh, the high alien, um, is, is kind of that, but it was great because we wanted to showcase these characters in a way that just didn't show, um, physically like why or power set, why 
um, they were chosen, um, you know, to potentially be on this team, but to just kind of show these other uh, characteristics that they had. Um, so what else they bring to the table other than their powers? Um, so it was really nice to like really explore that, especially like with Jubilee. So her, my introduction to Jubilee was through the animated series and for her to go from being kind of the student to being the teacher was really fun to kind of explore. Um, so I had a really fun, I had fun with that. And also it was kind of demented, but also fun to know that yeah, y'all are going to love these stories, but something really terrible was going to happen to all of them. Um, and by the way, I also voted for Juggernaut because that's just, I, I just really love a thick body villain. Um, so that was my reasoning for it. <laughs> and it just You're so not. happened. It, it, yeah, it worked out that um, it didn't matter anyway, because they were all, no one's going to be safe. So I've always had a special place for Juggernaut, but this show, doing this show, has made me the biggest Juggernaut fan. Uh, I because uh, I've I, you know we've done all the '60s comics, so I've spent a lot of time with this guy now, and I, I genuinely love him. Uh, Chuck Austin, uh, who I've interviewed a few times, is the one that you know first put him on the X Men. It's really fun seeing him back with the team. Um, which of those characters was the hardest for you to uh, to figure out or or get into a sympathetic space with? Actually, it, it was Frenzy. Um, because again, like this is a character who um, is the literal embodiment of strong black woman, right? Um, because of her attributes. Um, and the first time her origin story is touched on is used as a point of let's show her being strong because of this. Um, so for me, I was like, well, then how do I write this in a way that we can touch on that, but give this to be a moment for her to be vulnerable? And it's not a weakness to be vulnerable. If anything, it takes a lot of strength to even allow yourself to be open in that way. So I wanted to show her having strength in that way from that situation um, and her time uh, with taking, you know, a minute to, you know, not beat the recruits into the ground um, <laughs> and to kind of show her softness. Because again, like this is just something that just personally very important to me when it comes to especially black women characters superheroes at that that they're allowed to be soft um so and that it was just really trying to figure out well how do you put her in a situation where she's allowed to be soft so you know impromptu day date um and it just kind of happened to work out she's come a long way from her early 80s introduction mm -hmm. as a leather mama drug addict <laughs> yeah <laughs> a, a very long way um so had a lot of x factor and i was like man um she looks really cool but ooh, this is a little rough yeah that that story uh back in the early x factor days is, is a little crazy uh let me hear from each of you and then we'll transition into our issue review who's that one character that you wish you could get your hands on and uh and make people care about who's that one that's just like near and dear to you uh they, they you're just the biggest fan of I've been trying to let get them to let me do more with Beetle, Janice Lincoln. Uh every every single time I talk to an editor over there, because she's fascinating. I think she's really fun. And like, yeah, I just I really enjoyed I got to do uh she was a villain in a Miles Morales Marvel Unlimited I did, and I just enjoyed it. I like Lonnie, all of it. Give me, give me Beetle. Please give me Beetle. Are you reading Zebwell's Amazing Spider-Man? Uh, no, no, I'm I'm way behind. Mm. Oh, they're they're doing some stuff with Beetle. I won't spoil yeah. it for you, but she's about to have some big moments in the upcoming nice. game or storyline. Uh, Sean, how about you? Um, this is a hard one because it's between two characters, and and one you can is give me two. Kinda, that's fine. 
Okay. Um, one, one is one is Blue Marvel. I, I still don't think he, he gets his due. Um, and uh, the second is like really close to my heart. Like I cried when I when I read his story. Um, is uh, Isaiah Bradley, um, Captain mm. America. It was. Um, I know his story is more or less pretty much told, but you know, I, I would, I would jump for a chance of that to, to to get my hands on that character. I feel like I read a preview. They've got time. Uh, they're bringing Elijah Bradley back, I think, in something soon. But I have to go check. Oh, yeah, Marvel, uh, Marvel Voices Legends, uh, out in January, end of January. Yeah, yeah, that'll be great. Uh, and then Stephanie. Uh, I'm going to cheat. I have two, um, but I want to write them together. And for this one, it's going to be a little hard given like what he's currently doing, but it's Beast and Wonder Man. Um, I just really love their friendship, especially those older Avenger comics where it's just got these two guys who are just hanging out, going to clubs together, trying to like get dates and whatnot. Um, I want to do a little buddy situation um, with them, but those would be my top two. Those two give me such like, early 80s SNL vibes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Night at the Roxbury all day long. <laughs> what a joy to get to know each of you. Uh, and I'm again, I'm an, an enormous fan of your work and, uh, and your talent. So thank you. Thank you for coming on and sharing some of these stories. We're going to jump into a ridiculous old Fantastic Four story in a few minutes. Uh, I would love to hear, I've heard from Stephanie, I've asked this, but, uh, but uh, Jay and Sean, are you Silver Age guys? Uh, are you, are you familiar with Silver Age X-Men stuff? Uh, uh, and, and early Fantastic Four, even. Uh, I'd love to hear some of your preliminary thoughts. Um, not so much Silver Age stuff. Um, like, I, I attempted, like, I'm a 90s, 80s, 90s kid, so I, I attempted reading more Fantastic Four and stuff when I was, like, literally in maybe 95, 96. Um, and I, I, from what I'm told, that wasn't, like, their best era. So I, I'm, I've been told that they're, their uh their better eras were 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 silver age so i'll just uh and uh how about you jay i love me a silver age comic uh i love silver age dc i love the like overwrought overly dramatic almost nonsensical storytelling the way the characters are all like either very bombastic or like super 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 stereotypey and i just you give me dialogue written in dialect and i'm like yep that's a comic book this is great <laughs> uh and then uh this particular issue fantastic four number 104 we covered this uh in our discussion on 102 but two things to mention quickly fantastic four 102 is the last jack kirby stan lee issue of fantastic four uh they did 102 issues together so this uh this is right after that i kind of think they had a falling out and jack went on to other things uh although he did draw more of the fantastic four later the other thing to mention quickly is this particular issue does cross over technically with john burns x-men the hidden years right at the end of the series where xavier's floating around astrally during part of this adventure but we've already talked about that on my show so we don't need to cover it. So uh, we automatically, before we review this issue, anybody that does something stupid or shitty, we can just blame Charles Xavier for messing with them because <laughs> he's there the whole time. Uh, this is also, uh, when people read Silver Age for the first time, they're often very surprised by Magneto in this era because this is before Claremont got his hands on him. Uh, what's your one-two punch on uh, Magneto in the 1970s? Uh, Stephanie, do you want to take that one first? Uh, insufferable. Um, Magneto is. <laughs> Nothing about him is suave, and that is just unfortunate. 
Uh, Jay and Sean, any thoughts on Magneto here? He's doing so much. He's just, he's doing the most at every turn. It's so many languages, like so much language, so many words. Uh, I kind of miss it. I kind of, I kind of miss a super villain, true super villain Magneto, you know? Uh, Sean, any Magneto thoughts? Uh, it's uh, funny enough, like Magneto is one of my favorite mutants, but um, this version, um, man, I'm trying to be as, as 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 nice and as generous as I possibly can, but I can't. He's, he he totally he totally sucks in this. He's like he's just a terrible human being in every possible way he can be, um, which to a degree is you know kind of like yeah. The, the, He's a he's a he's a true villain. He's a true heel on this, but it's like he uh, he is all like extended fingers and like giant yeah. jaws and like wide eyes in this. He's very like a, he's like a melodramatic like opera villain of some kind who's just like going crazy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're going to introduce uh, Fantastic Four 104. This is from September 1970. Stanley is the writer and editor. Uh, the uh, the penciler on this is uh, John Ramita. The inker is John Verporten. The letterer is uh, Joe Sinnott. Uh, and, or excuse me, it is Artie Simic in this issue. Uh, and uh, it's it's a fun, campy, early 70s ride. Previously, uh, we have covered this story very quickly in our previous two episodes. Magneto was found by the Submariner in the Savage Land. Uh, again, the Hidden Years is a part of this, too. Uh, he was taken to Atlantis, where he kind of manipulated events and, I don't know, thing and Human Torch were being real stupid. <laughs> There's a lot of things that escalate. But they end up uh, at war with the Atlanteans, and they're manipulated by Magneto. The Atlantean army is attacking the surface world again. Uh, the FF are trying to avert this war on the orders of Richard Nixon, who shows up here. Uh, but Magneto has captured both the Invisible Girl and Dorma, and uh, now they're like, we have no choice. He has our women, so we must fight. Uh, the cover of this particular issue is really fantastic. We get Magneto in a throne with Invisible Girl and Dorma on either side of him in uh, like little glowy golden stasis tubes. Uh, he is gripping the stone, uh, the throne up on his dais. He is manspreading. Uh, the Fantastic Four are rushing into uh, fight, but the Atlantean army is flanking Magneto. The title of this story is Our World Enslaved, which is kind of a dramatic title for a kind of anticlimactic <laughs> issue. But uh, Sean, let me hear from you first here. What are your thoughts on this cover? If overcompensation was a person, like that's that's what this is. Like that's I'll give it this. This is an interesting uniform for Magneto. That's interesting. Um, I don't know about those those tubes on the on the arm there, but uh, um, this is the only time I've did I've not liked Magneto. I, I can I could I think I can honestly say that. Um, this and is I'm his worst. This it. is his worst era. He's going to get changed into a baby real soon, and then it's all uphill from there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, he'll get a second chance. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was super weird. Uh, just how they have this like literally invisible woman, one of the most powerful women in Marvel, um, just kind of captured there, helpless, unable to do anything. I, I was just like, I, I just can't accept that that would happen. Not without like a massive fight. Um, I also thought it was like Fantastic Four look a little small in front there. Like this is this is really pushing Magneto um, 
as the centerpiece just on that artwork and i can't help but to look at it as an, as an artist like uh, i was um when i first got the got the issue on my kindle i was just like i, sh I should just try to read this as a fan and forget what they did with magneto but i i really you know this is and i know this is uh popular to go this direction with the cover but it's just like you know Menacing villain in the center, two flanking helpless women on the sides, heroes come in to save the day, but it's like, uh, the way the artwork's depicted, Magneto is about the largest thing on this cover. Uh, um, I will I will toss out three uh, thoughts very quickly. Number one, Magneto thinks he's giving off big dick energy, but he's giving off very little dick energy. <laughs> Number two, maybe Sue could have escaped, but she kind of enjoyed hanging out with Namor. Uh, she's always had a thing for Namor on the side. Uh, number mm -hmm. three, this may be the only time we ever talk about Dorma, the uh, the later wife of uh, Namor, the Submariner. I love myself a 60s woman character. Uh, she later gets murdered by the awful character Lyra uh, at her wedding to, uh, re to Namor, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, and has never really come back. She doesn't get a lot to do here, but I do, again, love, uh, I do love a 60s character, and she's like the Atlantean princess character in her uh, her big red cape. Uh, we, we do love Dorma on this show. Uh, let me turn it over to Stephanie. Will you talk about the first few pages of the book for us? Tell us what happens. Oh, um, so we have uh, the Fantastic Three uh, flying in in Reed's little uh, spaceship or floating ship with uh, Namor on the side. And there's a lot of bickering back and forth. And that is one of the things that I absolutely enjoy about older comics is that you get a lot of banter. Um, I'm a huge fan of 80s, 80s action films. So they always make me think of those. Um, so they're going back and forth. Ben Grimm is being so annoying. Um, and I get it, right? Like you are just literally tough because you are made of rock but i just want someone to soften him up a little bit and i kind of wanted him to fight um, namor as he kept threatening to do so that namor could soften him up just a little bit um i so read uh, <laughs> i read ben Grimm in this era as donald duck everything he does you, is just major donald duck energy <laughs> you are very right about that um even to the like the wind up punch that Donald likes to do, um, let me at him because that is very much his energy. But um, they're flying in and they're kind of going through like what they plan on doing. So tactics and re wants Namor to go in and lie, but say that he pledges his allegiance to Magneto because he's like, well, he already got your people lined up and pledging allegiance to him. So you might as well do it too. And that'll allow us to come on in and save the day. Um, now, it's funny because Namor is also kind of like bigging Magneto up. And he's talking about how great his magnetic powers are um, and how he's like grounded and neutralized planes. And he's got ships floating all over the place and expl exploding warheads and all these things. It's kind of like, okay, well, did you hire him to take Dorma, because like, what is this? Like, you're really bigging this man up, and y'all are supposed <laughs> to be fighting him. Um, so anyway, Namor is like ready to charge in, and Rhea is like, no, 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 you can't do that. Um, and again, like Ben is absolutely adding nothing to this conversation other than let me at him, and pretty much, you know, coming at Namor's neck the entire time. But again, Ben, I get it, but like, also calm down because. I think that Namor could hold his own against um, the thing uh, quite easily. So 
Uh, they finally get him to Namor to go ahead and agree to submit and give the his Lord of the Lord of Atlantis serve Magneto. Never, <laughs> never that. And he gives them <laughs> and like he gives them. Uh, he tells them he'll go ahead and do it or whatever. He surprisingly tells Reed, like, you got a fair point. So, you know, I'm going to go ahead and go. Um, so he leaves. And these eyebrows are crazy. I just want to point that out. Um, I, he, uh, I don't know. <laughs> he goes, he goes, I will do it, but only because I thirst for action. <laughs> you know what? Both men and Namor, they got to find some hobbies because there's no reason like you should have that much energy and you just can't relax. So and those eyebrows, again, are just like really, really wild and crazy. Um, So he flies off and uh, goes to greet Magneto and is like, you know, uh, what does Magneto say? Get to one of the battle cruisers, take command and lead the attack in the name of Magneto. He was like, I got you, boss. I'm gonna go ahead and do that for you. But this so, whole this whole story is like Magneto and Namor so horny for each other. When Namor yes. comes back, Magneto goes, "I knew it. He's elected to return and serve Magneto." <laughs> and it's just like Magneto, get you get real because this isn't even the, your best suit. This is probably one of his worst suit errors, actually. So the fact that he even has this type of energy um, prior to being the suave Magneto that we we've, we've come to know. Um, it's really just saying, wow, you, you've got, you know, big kahunas there, guy. Um, so anyway, Magneto goes back in and <laughs> Dorma is starting to wake up. Sue is still knocked out. And the reasoning for that, I believe, is because she's tired. Um, that is why she's still asleep because she's got that little, um, at this time, their son is born because I think Agatha is watching him or whatever. Yeah, but Franklin's so, like, like a year old. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Franklin's a year. Yeah. She's tired. She's been up all night. Reed's not helping. She's definitely tired. So they get back to the Bachelor building. And I forgot Crystal at this time was with the Fantastic Four. So when um, Johnny yells, Chris, originally I wrote, wrote that. I mean, I read that as cries. And I was like, cool. Who the hell is Chris? Right? It's Chris. It's, it's Crystal. Um, who will later they will break up and Crystal will go on to date a um real estate agent while she's married to uh Quicksilver, which is one of my favorite things ever. So anyway, she also she also marries Ronan the Accuser for a while. She, you know, Crystal. I, if somebody is going to be on the Real Housewives of Marvel, Crystal is first in line because she has the backstory, right? So um, Crystal and Johnny, you know, giving each other hard eyes again, Ben is in the back, just being grumpy, just being mean for no reason um, and blames this on Reed that all this is going on. He says this is Big Brain's fault, uh, which again, like fam, I'm pretty sure that Reed is cutting y'all's checks. I would talk to him just a little bit, a little bit easier than that. <laughs> um, so the plan is in motion and uh, page five ends with um, move. All of you, we're not playing games. Um, so he's telling them, get get with it. I've already called Agatha to see if Franklin is OK. Um, I believe that he is. And I need y'all to go ahead and do what you need to do so that I can get my wife back, because I'll be damned if I pay Agatha another cent for keeping Franklin. So you get to write a mojo story, uh, and it's the Real Housewives of Marvel. You get, uh, you know, 10 or 15 pages. Uh, Crystal, who else is on it with you? Crystal's there. Sue's there. 
Um, Storm is there just off GP. Um, she was married. Also, to, she was married to Black Panther once. I know that's exactly why she's there. Um, we also we also gonna have two uh, women who actually were never really married to anyone. They were just kind of there. Um, so I think Cersei should show up. Um, she should definitely be there because Crystal's there. They had a whole thing with Black Knight. Um, so she should show up, and then you know what, Carol. Oh, and we cannot forget um, Janet Van Dyne. Janet Van Dyne, if you give her too much alcohol, is going to tell all your business and send you into creating uh, <laughs> House of M. <laughs> oh, you, we, Emma Frost is the wife of Tony Stark can show up these days. Oh, yeah. Uh, she, but Scarlet you know, Witch could be there. Jessica Jones could be there. <laughs> they, they all, they, these are characters that are not, they don't have, um, cause it wouldn't be a peach. They would get something else. I don't know what it, maybe it would be like a pin particle or something. They would hold that, but, um, uh, they would show up as just kind of guests. Um, Emma should be on the show, but the ladies don't want her on the show because they got too much beef. <laughs> oh God. Even Rogue could show up. We could have a whole real housewives like Krakoa. <laughs> Everybody's married these days. <laughs> yes. Uh, Sean, will you take us through the next section of the book where we uh, we get Richard Nixon showing up? <laughs> uh, yes, um, the pillar of moral integrity and strength, and uh, Richard Richard Nixon. Um, <laughs> uh, so we start off with Richard Nixon um, being a force for integrity and honesty, and and uh, getting things done in America. Uh, is scolding Reed Richards for uh, letting the Atlantean threat get out of hand and out of control and letting them attack New York City. And and I can't, I can't do a Nixon impression, but there's a, it, it spells it this way. He, he's like wagging his finger in the camera and goes, I'm no longer <laughs> impressed by your rhetoric. This is a sad day for America. <laughs> yeah, just just with, the, with, his, with the jowls just shaking and raging. Oh. Like... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's like, it literally has a panel of him like wagging his finger at Richard. I'm just like, oh my. God. Okay. Um, so this is the point where where Reed is is, is 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 literally trying to tell him like it's not it's not Namor it's not the Atlanteans it's really Magneto. Um, somebody told him he was ugly when he was a kid. He grew up. Now he's overcompensating. So now um, <laughs> everyone's got to pay. Um, so they're going back and forth. Um, Nixon is saying they don't want to attack New York directly because, you know, they don't want to hit civilians. That's interesting. Um, and uh, Reed being super apologetic at this point, um, just uh, just saying, hey, just trust us. Me and my partners are going to be able to take care of this. And I really had that issue, had an issue with him calling the rest of his friends and family, literal family partners. But um, that's Reed. Um, we also get the best line in this whole book. Uh, this is my single favorite. When Nixon goes, I never should have listened to you, despite what Trisha said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was great. And, and it's like, and they even try to let, get, get, have Nixon, like, have, like, sort of the last word in the conversation. Like, this is not the time. Like, they're, they're going to, like, where he, he decides, like, this is the time where they need to lower their voices now. I was just like, who says this in an argument? I'm like, <laughs> anyway. It was um, it was hilarious. It's just it, it felt like another another character kind of overcompensating, but I was just like, I'm, I'll let it go. Um, I think that's just kind of all men did in the seventies. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what is I'm like, like bros, like, what do we have issues with here? It's like it's just, it's 
we have to learn to love ourselves. It's okay. Um, so they devise a plan. Um, they're going to send Johnny Storm out to try to, uh, I think he was, his, his, his plot was to try to, I think, get, try to figure out where Agneto was. Yeah, he, then, he seems to be kind of trying to find Yeah. Yeah, he was just on a recon in the sky, just trying to surveying everything. And that's where um, the Atlanteans find them. And they incidentally shoot at them, despite Namor trying to stop them. Um, I was like, wow, that sucks. Um, I, when I was looking at that, I was like, this is how wars happen. Like, just all out war. Anyway, um, despite Johnny getting shot literally almost out of the air, um, he quickly forgives it. Not even, not even thinking about it. Not even bringing it up too much. Um, they manage to, to contact each other. They talk, um, and then they devise a plan to try to get back to Magneto to try to rescue uh, his future wife and Sue Storm. And um, and there's always, point, you know, Marvel has this famous history of the '40s comic book where uh, Namor and the Human Torch fight in the sky. So whenever you see these yeah. two flying side by side, it's always a callback to that classic. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even think about that when I was reading it. I was just like, wow. Okay, okay. Um, also, page nine, the- uh, Stephanie, there is the eyebrows that you've been looking for. <laughs> oh, <pinnacle>. yeah. <laughs> just so, I mean, it's just so wild, right? Because, like, who... Someone was really going up for McDonald's when they came up with... I don't, I don't even know if the Golden Archers were around at the time that uh, he came to be. Maybe McDonald's was inspired by Namor. <laughs> gossip i'm gonna i'm gonna write that book whatever that book is <laughs> uh sean keep going <laughs> yes i'm sorry i love it um and this uh will bring me to uh the last panel of page nine which is this is uh this is where i really hate it hate it magneto because literally he looks at sue storm even at this point still one of the most powerful women in marvel comics doesn't even know her name calls her the golden haired one it's like what anyway um and the atlantean army is outside like cheering and it goes do you hear those cheers they are for me they are for your master yeah. for the master of all mankind yeah the, the the overlord of the earth magneto it's like oh my goodness like every overcompensation that you can possibly think of i was like anything to face your own personal demons anyway um Let's see, I think, yeah, then page 10, that's where Sue attempts to try to escape. Yeah, and she, then... like, she like insults him and he's like, fuck you, I will blast you with my power, which of course is her plan and she's freed and can turn invisible. Yeah, uh, she basically just baited him, right? She just kind of worded like, hey, you're a coward. And then he just went with it and was like, how dare you call me a coward? And he just tried to blast her. And it's like, it, it was crazy. This is the least I've ever liked Magneto. Um, and I've liked them since I was a kid. But <laughs> so at slight. the bottom of page ten, she's invisible, and I actually really think this is cool. Magneto finds her by like just like magnetizing a bunch of like nuts and bolts and like, making them surround her yeah, body. Yeah, so she can't be invisible because she's uh. Although you know she could just turn those invisible too, I suppose. But it's kind of cool. It's a cool power moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's it's not redeeming, but. That's a cool. That's a cool thought to have with 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 his power. A cool use of his power. Uh, Jade, will you take us through the next section? Yes, I will. I do just want to note that when he frees her, she goads him into freeing her. 
She's, he's not actually trying to blast her. He's like, you're you're calling me a coward who can free you in a, if a gesture. And then he does. So <laughs> not real smart. There's not a this is a thing that I love about Silver Age comics. No one is smart. They are all not smart in every possible turn. So because, yes, yeah, Sue does not try to turn the nuts and bolts invisible or do anything else while she's invisible. Or put an invisible bubble around Magneto. She does none of those things. She just puts a force field around herself, which she then drops when Magneto just says he's going to kill Lady Dorma. He doesn't doesn't try. There's no... He just is like, I'm going to kill her. And Sue is immediately like, all right, never mind. I'm cool. We're cool. Uh, we can blame... We can blame... Stephanie says Sue's tired, but also I, I, Xavier's floating around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That Xavier did that. Xavier was like, yes, no. Uh, and then, yes, uh, Magneto, who, as far as I can tell, at this point has taken over Central Park. And that's pretty much it uh, in terms of his grand legions are everywhere. We don't really see legions everywhere. He doesn't really have the world. He's pretty much just like got the sheep meadow. Uh, he's got that on lock, um, but he's very proud of that. And very serious about it. And then we get the cover image of him on a throne with Sue and Dorma in cylinders, life-size cylinders. Sue is very, very specifically saying that these are life-size cylinders that flaunt her helplessness. Again, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're just glass. So... <laughs> She's one, is full of, one is full of water, one is full of air. I want to read yeah. that speech here as he, because I'm, I'm getting the vibe, like he contacted like a planning committee. He's working <laughs> with like a press agent. They, they've like set up a little dais in the park so that he can have a press conference and they've put the cylinders together. He goes, uh, see, the mightiest city on earth sprawls helplessly before me. My legions are everywhere and none can attack me without this, <laughs> without slaying the very ones they seek to save. So let it be known by all who live, by all who breathe, Magneto reigns supreme. The world is mine. And this is literally any 60s villain could be saying the same speech. <laughs> right. And then he continues, therefore, let the Fantastic Ford and the Lord of Atlantis come forth to pledge their allegiance to their, their monarch Magneto. I, I, don't, I don't know who he's saying this to. There's no microphone. I don't know how he thinks the Fantastic Four who are nowhere nearby are hearing this. His documentary film crew is just <laughs> off panel. <laughs> I'm just like, there's a there's so much, so much going on here. And just I know I, I didn't read all the things, but like this is the Atlantean army that he's now in charge of, that like uh, presumably 10 minutes ago Submariner was in charge of, <laughs> and they have no conflict whatsoever about switching their allegiance completely. It's, uh, I don't know if that's good or bad discipline uh, for this army. So, but then Submariner does show up um, to declare his allegiance. Uh, but also there's a, negotiate. There's a moment where Magneto goes, time enough for that, my hot-tempered amphibian. <laughs> and I'm just picturing him using his sexy voice there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and now, after all of these things, this is the moment where Magneto orders his armies to attack the Baxter building and seize the Fantastic Four. Uh, they did not respond to his previous uh, so generous invitation that he never delivered to them. They don't know. They're just 
in the building. Um, but yes, so the Atlanteans storm the Baxter building uh, and Reed, Reed, man, Reed's not explaining anything to anyone. He just says he needs more time. He doesn't say why. He, there's no plan. He's just like sending the Fantastic Four out to fight for no good reason. Uh, kind of just sending them out as fodder. And then, and they do. They just like zoop right out there. Uh, and now we get to our elevator moment. Uh, There's like a great sitcom moment here where like the Atlantean army is like marching to the Baxter building and they get there and then they push the elevator button. Yes. <laughs> They're just looking yeah. at their watch, waiting. Ding. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> slowly riding yep, up. It's so great. They're just waiting at the bottom. Just, you know, they've got flying cars, not flying <laughs> to the top. Nope. We're going to take the elevator, but there's also again to the, uh, to the quippiness of all of these things. And like, uh, giving it out to Keith Geffen, uh, the Bwahaha league is some of my favorite stuff. And this is like right out of it as Reed is barking orders to the team and says, you've got to gain me more. You got to gain me time. Ben just boom. Why don't you buy a blasted watch like anyone else? Like no. I mean, yes, but no, that's not even the kind of time he's talking about. That's okay, Ben. Cool. Yeah, yeah, you roasted him on that one. That was good job. Good job. That's oh, great. It's great. I love it. I love it so much. I love every every panel. Um, so yes, then Ben runs down. And again, this is their house. This is where they live. He, there's no other way for him to open this elevator door uh, in the high-tech, highly advanced Baxter building than just ripping the doors open and the wall out for the elevator shaft uh, with a very great Batman-y scrunch. Jay, uh, Jay, do you have children? Uh, I do not. Uh, Stephanie and I have children. Sean, do you have children? Yeah, I got a five-year-old. Okay, so there's moments, and, and the parents I would love to hear from here, where your kid is, like, acting up, and they got the crayons out, and they're, like, coloring all over the wall, or they're, like, into the pantry, and stuff's all over the floor, but you just don't care anymore. You're like, I just I just need to let them destroy something before I lose my mind. This is Reed with Thing. Thing's, like, destroying shit all over the house, and Reed's just like, I can't anymore. Like, just let, let the toddler go. Uh, thoughts from the other parents here. <laughs> Oh, I, I get it. There have been a couple times where um, my son was doing the most and I told my husband, I was like, I'm checking out uh, before I check out. So uh, I'm going to let you deal with this for about an hour or two. Um, I'm gone. I will be in sitting in the parking lot at Target for about an hour. There's like ketchup being squirted all over the bathroom or something. And I just like, yeah, okay. Have fun, bud. I'm done. <laughs> That is, I mean, Ben yeah. does have big toddler energy in all of this. Uh, okay, let me jump to the last few pages of the book. We'll talk about what happens. Uh, uh, Jay, did I cut you off at all? Uh, I just, just to to sort of wrap up what Ben does is once he uh, yanks open the elevator shaft, he then pulls the elevator towards him which feels like he could have achieved by just waiting, but then gets shot by the Atlanteans and stunned. And again, he seems very surprised that the Atlantean technically advanced army has arrived with something that is not an ordinary pop gun. 
and then we we close out with Reed uh, in I've got to say a nice use of Reed's power, sending his fist down the hall to swack a couple of Atlantean guys while still doing whatever this thing that he's doing that he hasn't told anyone it is uh, in the in the lab. Um, yeah, Reed, it's, Reed Richards is a notoriously bad communicator. <laughs> really bad. Really, really bad. Uh, so I'll close out the issue really quickly. Reed needs more time in his lab, and he goes, Crystal, your elemental power, can it hold them long enough? And she screams, I will not fail you. And her wind sweeps down the Atlantean soldiers. She knocks the gun out of their hands. Human Torch takes off and knocks the ship out with a shap. Uh, he catches another ship in a tunnel of heat, and then he lands back at the Baxter building. And Reed is in his lab building a fancy device that looks like the most elaborate sex toy I have ever seen. Uh, would someone like to describe Reed's device for me? <laughs> it's given motorized um, flashlight that is so terrible. <laughs> It's green, and uh, that's all you need to know. <laughs> go, go look it up. <laughs> uh, then he yells, there is no time for testing. It has to work, or Earth will become a bloodbath. And Thing goes, hey, how can a little gizmo like this put the kibosh on Magneto? You might as well use your Dick Tracy wrist gun. Uh, but they take their fantastic car to Magneto, who calls them bungling fools, and he lets them land. Uh, Nag Namor is at Magneto's side, and uh, he yells, the time has come for you to lip sync for your life. Oh, just kidding. But he tells the Atlantean soldiers to hold back. Uh, Crystal gets out of the ship, and she is drama. She's doing her best storm impersonation. Uh, typhoon is something she could be shouting. She says, by my elemental power, let the skies grow dark. Let the lightning flash. Uh, Reed stretches into the air, blankets Magneto with an electric converter. The more energy you emit, the more it converts it against you. So that's the device he's been building. And it works. Magneto gets caught in like a magnetic cone of shame while the human torch uh, <laughs> is flaming. He's like unflamed on his top half so that he can touch Sue and Dorma while he flies. Uh, Magneto yells, the more magnetic force I hurl, the more I trap myself within this cone, and yet I cannot stop. It's my only power, my only strength. God, he's so much drama. Uh, Namor ends the war, reads like, I hope Nixon's not mad at us, uh, and, and Namor, thank you, and Namor goes, the Submariner does not desire your gratitude. We will never be friends, you stupid prejudiced human. Uh, I leave you to your world of strife and never-ending war, and Sue's kind of like, yeah, he's kind of right. Like, I get it. <laughs> so, Magneto is stuck under his cone of shame until the military comes to get him. In our next episode, uh, we will see him escape this trap by meditating. No joke. We'll get there next episode. <laughs> I would love to hear your wow. thoughts uh, from the group. What were the moments that really stood out in this issue for you? Oh. Where do we begin? Um, <laughs> for me, <laughs> it's just it always seems like Reed is building something that he tells no one about. Um, they even do this in the Fantastic Four movie, which I enjoy. But uh, and I do, I do enjoy that movie. Um, but I think that is just, I don't know. Like, is this guy so smart and so great that you guys just blindly follow and do, you know, carry out his orders and you just hope that this thing, the sex toy that he's going to sell later actually works. And apparently they do. Um, also, I, I guess nice that Crystal had a moment to be like, you know, a bad bitch because the other ones were stuck in glass tubes. 
Uh, but yeah. Um, and then Magneto. What a I'm so happy he's not like this. I'm I'm so happy he is not. This is that Claremont did what he did with them because this is awful. I'm so sorry, Magneto. <laughs> uh Sean, any final thoughts? Oh man, my favorite part is Richard Nixon. I'm 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 sorry that like that was like I like I saw your email when like when you brought up Richard Nixon, I was just like, oh, what does he mean? And then when I actually got to the page, I, I just bust out laughing out loud. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. And he's like morally scolding him and <laughs> saying, "You let me down. You let you let, you let America down." I was like, "Wow, this didn't age well." But um, this comic book came it, out in 1970, which would have been right around Watergate. And this is one of the few eras where Marvel would show the president in the pages. Later, they kind of put them all obscure and in shadow because of the sliding time scale. But right after yeah. this is also, and we'll cover this on my show later this year, the Steve Englehart story where Captain America discovers that the secret empire is ruled by a mysterious figure highly placed in the United States government who commits suicide at the end of the issue. And then Cap quits being Captain America and starts being Nomad. This is uh, right after this. And the X-Men are part of that story. So we'll get there later that year, but we're going to have some more Nixon stuff, uh, although he's not shown on panel in that story. I don't know if you guys have any Nixon thoughts here. He's wild at this issue. (laughs) (laughs) Nixon is wild. I do also love a comic book that has the lead say, let's hope this erased the credibility gap between Washington and the FF. Because you know what 12-year-olds are thinking about? The credibility gap. That's <laughs> that's the, the phrase on the tip of everyone's tongue at middle school. Um, but I'm, listen, my, my MVP here is always going to be Ben. Uh, he really says just the weirdest things at the worst times. Uh, and it's all in like the thickest, fakest Bowery Boy uh, accent imaginable scrapper he calls he calls namor king of atlantis a scrapper uh instead of fighter and then he really really just wants to clobber he had like i feel like he was like legally required to at least use the word clobber in every issue uh because he doesn't get to say it's clobber in time but he does say he wants to clobber uh magneto a little uh and that's just it's just great i just love him he's so he does not care like everyone else is like, there's an invasion of Atlanteans in the middle of New York. Uh, our great, we're working with our greatest enemy, and Ben is just cutting jokes the whole time. Like none of this really matters. It's great. I love it. Ben. Uh, ben is Donald Duck again. He, you know, <laughs> he runs up throwing the like fit, and he pulls the elevator up, and then he gets shot and knocked down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this has been a genuine joy. Uh, at the end of this issue, there is a uh, there's a, a box that says next monster in the streets. So I'm putting you all on the spot. It's your own catchphrase. Blank in the sheets, monster in the streets. What uh, what would your uh, first blank be? Sleep. <laughs> sleep. Sleep in the sheets. You guys, I think Stephanie's tired. <laughs> I think I think so. I think Stephanie just needs, is just really wants to get some sleep. Um, uh, just because it was spooky season, so it's on my mind. Frankenstein in the sheet in the streets, monster in the sheets. Okay, okay. Uh, Sean, how about you? Oh man, it's probably going to be. It's not even that clever but I was, the first thing that came to mind was like maybe i'm humble in the streets 
and <laughs> and uh, I don't want to say like probably probably a little egotistical on the sheets. Just being honest, but um, yeah. My answer: I did a uh, ten and a half hours of therapy before we did this uh, this podcast tonight. So I'm a therapist in the sheets. <laughs> and the monster in the streets that's my energy this evening uh don't don't read too much into that <laughs> I'm just hey it sounds like the stars of only fans to me uh, how does just that read? make you feel he says <laughs> uh what a joy i'm so happy to have hung out with you all today we're gonna put this episode out on the main show on uh, november 20th uh, as we are wrapping up, where can people find each of you online and what would you like to uh, plug? Uh, let's go Stephanie, Sean, and then Jay. Uh, you can still find me on the app formerly known as Twitter um, until they start charging folks um, at Steph underscore I underscore Will. That's the same thing for Instagram and TikTok. Um, and this is not a Marvel thing. I'm so sorry. But if you are... At- at we all like, a fan okay we like yeah, other like, things too <laughs> okay so if you're at all a fan of like those visual encyclopedias i know i loved them as a kid so like it was a dream to write the strange and unsung all-stars of the dc universe uh james gunn wrote the four for that so if you like weird because i like weird or you i mean obviously you listen to chad's show you absolutely have to enjoy funny weird amazing things right <laughs> so check it out um you got characters like the beard hunter the guy who just hate beards so much that he goes out and he shaves people's faces against their will there you go out november 7th you heard it here the writer of modam is gonna write beard hunter next <laughs> uh sean um I think this has already been announced, right? So the, I, I do have a, a Deathlock story in uh, Marvel Voices Legends. Um, uh, that, that that won't be out until like the uh, the end of end of January, though. Um, right now, any stuff that's that's available now, um, Bishop Ward College has has become a trade, so you can look at the whole story now. Um, that came out in September, so um, definitely pick that up and. Uh, I did have a little fun in the issue of Moon Knight City of the Dead. Um, you know, it was in issue three. So that 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 was incredibly fun. Never thought I could close. That's Moon a Knight. great series. Yeah. Yeah. So much fun to draw. Especially all those old Moon Knight villains. It was great. I'm also talking to Sean about my wall, so I'll I'll look forward to uh making an announcement later. Uh and then over to Jay. Hey, y'all. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Jay Holtham. Uh, that's about the only place I exist online now. Um, and I don't really have anything to announce. I, there's something. Keep your eyes on the trades. Uh, something will be announced soonish. It may be announced by the time this is out, but I don't know for sure because certain companies uh, don't give us a lot of information. <laughs> Uh, keep your eyes out. I, I can't wait. Uh, lastly, you guys can find me online. I keep my own social media private because I got kiddos. The three of you are welcome to add me. But Gray Malkin Lane is mostly on Instagram these days. Gray Malkin underscore Lane and uh, on, uh, on Discord a little bit as well. Uh, the episode coming out immediately after this is our monthly trial. We're going to be doing a maxi episode on the character Sunfire, who's so complicated. And I have an incredible jury that includes uh, Trung Nguyen and Andrew Drillin and Jason Lowe. Uh, make sure to check that episode out 
out. Immediately after this, we will be jumping to Magneto's very next appearance in Amazing Adventures number nine, where he fights the Inhumans and escapes the trap through meditation. Uh, the featured guest on that episode is uh, is CF Villa. So uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you so much to uh, Sean and Jay and Stephanie. We will see you back here next time on Dream On. All right, everyone, we are so happy to be bringing you the uh, third story from uh, Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Uh, we're all having a really good time making this a little <laughs> reading show. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, this is the third issue from August 1996 uh, by Peter Milligan and John Pollyon. Sean Martinbro, Tommy Lee Edwards on inks, Kevin Summers on colors, and Mark Powers as the editor. The title of this issue is The Origin of the Species. Uh, I, Chad Anderson, will be playing your narrator. Justin Wilder as Nathaniel Essex. Alicia Wilder as Rebecca Essex. For now. (laughs) (laughs) Steve uh, Duda, that's me, as uh, Cyclops and Charles Darwin. I'm Demanda Martini. This episode, you can see me as Oscar, Cootie Tremble, The Return of, Daniel, The Doctor, many other ancillary characters. I'm Arturo, and I have the pleasure of being your apocalypse. (laughs) I'm Sarah Sentry, and I'm Jean Grey. You sure are. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the back cover says, 19th century London. The X-Men's darkest hour, the ancient conqueror known as Apocalypse has defeated Cyclops and Phoenix, who offered the renegade scientist Nathaniel Essex a Faustian deal. Little does Essex realize that tragedy is poised to strike at his very heart, a catastrophe that will force him into a decision that could forever change the course of mankind's fate. Pages one through four. Narrator. 1859, London. Nathaniel Essex holds the wet and limp form of Jean Grey. Who are you? What are you? I saw you fly. You made solid objects move through the air. You are, you must be a precursor of the great mutation that I have predicted. Proof that I am right and and the pompous fools who ridiculed me wrong. There is no answer from Jean Grey, the telepathic X-Man called Phoenix. And as her bearings return, she stifles a shudder for not only has she been pulled more than a century into the past by the time-spanning Ascani, and along with her husband, Scott Summers, been assigned the burden of preventing the rise of the ageless villain apocalypse. She now finds herself in the cold arms of Nathaniel Essex, a man she knows is destined to prey upon humanity as the mad geneticist known as Sinister, Oscar thinks. Oh, Oscar, me lad. That's one lady who could look after herself. Essex. Nope. (laughs) Essex, the offer that Apocalypse has made you. Join him and you'll damn this planet to untold pain and suffering. Who are you, woman? And by what power do you judge me? The being you speak of has walked this earth for countless ages. Imagine the knowledge he's gathered, the wonders he's seen. My husband, he is not so very unlike you. He almost lost his own son forever. Because of that creature, he, like you, is a passionate, driven man, and he has suffered greatly, but he doesn't let that ruin him. Irrelevant. All that matters is my work. What is the fate of one man compared to the future of a species? What about Rebecca, your wife? No. Whatever chance I had at happiness 
with her, with our unborn child, is gone. It's never too late. We can change. We have a choice. It's what makes us human. Nearby, Cootie Tremble has been transformed into a mutated cyborg. Oscar! And Oscar says, Just keep moving, don't look back. There's still time. Still time? Oh, Lord, what greatness. What exalted climbs of scientific achievement would I forego if that were only true? Cootie reaches out to snare Oscar with wiry tendrils. Oh, so fast, me old mucker! Oscar screams. <laughs> Cootie Tremble, erstwhile London thief. I've got a horrible pain all over me body, Oscar! I can't resist the temptation to rip your treacherous bleeding head off! Oop! Oop! Gene launches forward in a telekinetic bubble, thinking, Good lord, that man! What has Apocalypse done to him? Essex will have to wait, but I think I'm actually getting through to him. Cootie is knocked back as Oscar is saved. Something is wrong, he thinks. His work has been obsessed with the survival of the fittest. How does what he is witnessing fit into the scheme of things? He always presumed that when the Great Mutation came, a chosen few would have the correct Essex factor, and that these Essex men would, by dint of their superior nature, eclipse their cousins further down the evolutionary ladder, would diverge from the unmutated rabble. But this woman, risking her own life to save the stinking hide of a lowly thief, how can that aid her in her own survival? Could it be that in the future of the mutated ones, through, though a di divergent species, will remain in every way that matters human? It is too much. His mind is reeling. He must away. Essex. Gone. Don't have time to go after him. Got to find Scott. We have less than a day to stop Apocalypse. Might be able to return the favor there, miss. I knows the sewers and backwaters of this town like the back of me, what's it? Good. Scott, can you hear me? Jean reaches out to her husband through their telepathic rapport. Pages five and six. Even as beneath the streets of London, the alien stronghold has remained hidden for centuries, awaiting the dawn of a dark age, the resurrection of Apocalypse, the captive Cyclops thinks. Taking a hammering. Blacked out for a while back there. Consciousness returns to Scott Summers, also known as the Mutant Cyclops. You wake. Now tell me whence you drive your powers. Though puny compared to the might of Apocalypse, you have nevertheless proved a worthy opponent. Open your eyes, scum. Apocalypse commands you. Open my eyes? Anything you say. Without the protection of his ruby quartz visor, Scott Summers' mutant optic blasts are beyond his control. Apocalypse is hit by a full blast. Ugh! You are even stronger than I suspected. Even I cannot withstand it for long. Who are you? Someone who would be happy never to hear your name again. Ugh! No good. Couldn't maintain my optic blast at that level of 
Intensity. Apocalypse smashes his fist into Cyclops. You speak as though in possession of secret knowledge, but knowledge is nothing without power. It is over. Since time immemorial, I have sought one such as myself, a sign that a new era is a borning. Your appearance proves yet again that the hour of my ascendancy is at hand. Though it saddens me that a true warrior like yourself should waste your life on those too puny to defend themselves. This proves you are not fit to survive. Cyclops thinks. It's Apocalypse's machinery. Techno-organic. Just like what we faced in the 20th century. See how the stronghold shifts and alters shape to restrain you? As though the very laws of nature obey me. You will now suffer, experiencing pain on a hitherto undreamed of scale. But first... Alien metal flows like cool lava. His optic blasts burn through it, but the clever metal speedily reconstitutes its chemical makeup, like a species adapting to new environments, until a new element is born, impervious to Cyclops' force beams. Excellent. You see your refusal to tell me what I want to know as a sign of strength. It is not. A misguided loyalty to others that destroys yourself is a weakness, a rottenness. One that assures my ultimate supremacy over our kind. By the time I return, you will be broken and prepared to lay bare your very soul to me. Trust the words of one who has lived hundreds of lifetimes, whose most ancient enemies have long been but dust in the dunes of Egypt. You cannot combat strength with goodness or loyalty, only greater strength. So endeth your final lesson. Pages 7 through 10. On the road south to Kent, the horse's hooves seem to beat a constant refrain. Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca. Nathaniel thinks. Rebecca, how could I ever think of forsaking you? How I long for the warmth and succor of our marriage. I will dedicate my life to you and our child and to fighting the malady that took our Adam from us. I can be good, Rebecca. I can change. Isn't all my work an homage to nature's ability to change? But when Milbury House comes into view... My God, the freaks! The poor souls I kept incarcerated! But who let them free? The young boy named Daniel approaches. Was your wife who freed us, sir, and that other lady that does speak inside your head, her that got me talking again, sir? Where is my wife? Has anyone... <laughs> The words die in his mouth, that sound, a pitiful, bereft, almost inhuman wail of sorrow from the house. Nathaniel thinks, Rebecca! The air in her bedroom is heavy with sickness, but he sees her, and he allows himself, the fool, a flicker of hope. Rebecca! Please, sir, quiet! I have only just come, the poor girl! But the child! Is dead, good sir, born oh. prematurely. Perhaps induced by some sudden stress. Oh, Rebecca, I'm so, so sorry. Please, 
forgive me, but this is not the end. My love, when Adam died, I withdrew from you. You've suffered alone, but I swear on my life, you shall never be alone again. I realize now that you mean more to me than my work, more to me than mere science. I have returned to you, sweet Rebecca. We shall live again. We shall laugh again. Mr. Essex, please wring what source you can from these last precious moments with your wife, for I am afraid her time grows shorter with each passing moment. No! Rebecca, you cannot die. Courage, man! There is nothing to be done. Nathaniel, my husband, you ask for my forgiveness? This I cannot give you. Rebecca! Shh! Let me speak while I can. I loved you, Nathaniel Essex. At first, it was only duty, but I grew to love you with all my heart. No, it's too cruel. I refuse to let you die. Some things are beyond even your power, Nathaniel. If only I could have accepted that, things might have been different. Things can be different. I have turned my back on the monster I might have become. I was so proud of you. You were so brilliant, so romantic in your own way. But after Adam died, you became twisted, twisted and cruel. Cruel? No, I never meant to be. No, you are right. As ever, dear Rebecca, you are thoroughly right. And I am damnably wrong. But you must hold on. I, I shall save you. I shall use all my genius. Your genius? See where your so-called genius has brought us, Nathaniel. In the end, I left and feel no love for you. Your genius has seen to that. You are my husband, but you disgust me. You have made me lose my child. To me? You are utterly and contemptibly sinister. Later, Nathaniel takes a sledgehammer to the family gravestones. He hears her death rattle, and with it the end of all hope and the beginning of a dark and terrible age. There are many stones in the Essex family cemetery. Some date back to the time of King John, and he can smash them all. He can crack every stone with the Essex name carved above the pious inscription. He can dig up the skeletons that lie beneath them and crush them to dust and burn them to ashes. But he cannot escape, for these bones made him. Whatever information they carried and passed on still runs through his body. And when every stone and every skeleton has been destroyed, he is still Nathaniel Essex. And there is only one way he might escape from that. Nathaniel points a gun at his own head. Oh, dear God. If only, if only I could travel back in time. No, fool. There is no God. Time is not a highway down which we can travel. Pages 11 through 13. They've traveled from afar to reach this place, this cradle of evil, this bed of covert influence called the Hellfire Club. These are the shrouded men, the silent men, manipulating the world and its unwitting population from the shadows. But tonight, it is they who fear a power more malign and more pervasive than themselves. How dare the abomination summon us as though we were his slaves? 
Who saw him, Franz? We are either his slaves or his victims. We need a strong leader. The Serps are becoming troublesome in Russia, and that ugly fool Lincoln is going to cause trouble. We don't need an outsider to deal with that. But we cannot stand against him. He is not human. Humbug! We should shoot this foreign blackguard right between the... Your uh, Excellency. Um, See how the so-called power brokers plot and scheme and quibble like little children? Only the fact that you will be of some use to me stops me tearing the tongues from your bleeding throats. I have made a study of your age. It has a soft underbelly, which I will tear open with the ragged teeth of Set. My tactics shall be an honorable and time-tested one, well-documented on the papyri of old Egypt, through the writings of otherwise fools, of otherwise fools, war and pestilence. Mr. Essex shall develop the pestilence, and in time, through breeding, help me to control those who would be born with the power to stand against me. You dogs will provide the conditions for global upheaval and conflict. For only in this manner shall the weak be culled from the strong. My plan is a long-term one, for it might be some years before the great nations of the world finally clash. And from the bloody ruins of this modern, modern Golgotha, near and more terrible conflagrations shall rise industry craft wisdom coupled with barbarity sadism and madness where there is hope crush it where the seeds of freedom destroy it where there is prejudice ignorance hatred injustice nurture it give me war gentlemen Give me despair. Give me carnage. France against Prussia. Russia against Japan. Brother against brother. Workers against workers. Whites against blacks. For the age of apocalypse, the era in which only the fit survive, begins now. <coughs> I presume... You will be at the vanguard of this movement? Leading the way. I do not wish to unite humankind against a common foe. So at first I shall stay in the background. When the planet is ravaged by war and disease, I shall appear like the reaping wind. You will await the signal for your work to begin. Ah. Your greatness, how will we know this signal? Do not fear. You will know. You will know. Pages 14 and 15. An old sewer by the River Thames. Escorted by the erstwhile marauder named Oscar Stamp, Jean Grey throws her mind through the dark, phonic passways of the city. She thinks, God, I can sense him. I'm getting closer. He's suffering, being tortured. 
This way, milady. Judging by them screams, reckon the bloke of yours is just round the corner. Can't hold out. Much longer. Alien weaponry. Bombarding me. But I'll die before I reveal who we are. Gene thinks. Can't stop thinking about Essex. How his own tragedy so closely mirror what Scott went through with Cable. Which, Essex himself, as sinister, will be responsible for. He's surrounded by the bleeding marauders! Come on, blind boy, talk! Who are you? What are you doing here? Hit him again, Reggie! Odd! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm back. Scott, are you... I'm... Hey, Gene. I hear your thoughts loud and clear. Gene, be careful. Some of these goons have been enhanced. Mutated by Apocalypse's technology. Not to worry, lover. It'll take a lot more than them to come between me and you. (laughs) Phoenix's incredible mental powers unleash a blistering sigh assault. Caught by surprise, the marauders are telekinetically hurled through the dank air of the sewer and, like sewer rats, flee. Oscar, don't touch. You might get hurt yourself. Let Jean try to release me. No one ever trusts old Oscar to do do a blind thing. No offense intended. Me old mum was the same. Oscar, she'd say. Oscar, be quiet. Metal is alive. Organic. We'd better do this slowly. Apocalypse might have left some kind of trap. Gene is grabbed by mental tendrils. Metal metal tendrils. (laughs) Blast! It's got me! Fight it, Jean! Fight it! I'm trying to mentally control the tendrils to set us free, but they're not responding. Pages 16 and, pages 16 and 17. Downhouse, home of Charles Darwin, the world-renowned naturalist. What, then, are the social implications of Darwinism? Good question, Mort. Well, Charles... Doesn't all this survival of the fittest malarkey justify slavery, for instance? Slavery is an evil that debases the slave owner himself. Sir, there's a rather unkempt-looking gentleman to see you. Tell him I am busy. The truth is, people will probably use my theories to justify whatever creed they choose to espouse. Darwin! They didn't believe me, but I was right. I was right! What in heaven's name? Essex, Nathaniel, my god man, what's happened? I have seen it with my own eyes, Charles. Seen the veracity of my theories. Our species moves ineluctably toward the great mutation. And I have seen the future. The strong will be bad. The good, not strong enough. You and I, Charles, we have helped kill off the old gods. But there will be new ones. And these gods will be made in our own twisted image. And the worst of them will be cruel. So very cruel. Is it Rebecca? Child? Do not speak of Rebecca. Do not speak of the child. They were things of love and goodness, and and they withered and they died at my touch. And now I cannot exist with this intolerable burden, this fierce pain that consumes me. Tonight I join Rebecca. And my two children ensure 
and certain hope of nothing but an eternity of thankful oblivion. I leave the future to you. You are welcome to it. Daniel, this is madness. Let me, let me help you. As he turns and looks back at the hirsute biologist, he sees two of Darwin's children. Woken by his raised voice, they stand blinking in their nightgowns, and he wonders at their innocence, unsullied by the filth of experience. And he thinks of other children like them. He thinks of them growing as his own children might have. And then he thinks of apocalypse. Apocalypse. Pages 18 and 19. Apocalypse! As I suspected, this is the weakness, the evil of weakness that would brand our kind unfit to survive. I anticipated that she would return for you instead of abandoning you as any more highly developed creature would. And so I primed my stronghold to be ready. Jean trapped in thinking. Now might be the only chance I get. Must throw everything at him. Psionically chisel into his mind. Ah! ah, My brain pressure building beginning to weaken. No. Must prove I am superior. He's throwing everything back at me. So, you have the power to see into men's minds, to influence them, to control them. Surely there is no greater power than that. This is something I shall prepare for. Scott, I think I might have persuaded Essex not to accept Apocalypse's offer. Won't help much if we let Apocalypse take control of the planet. Oh no! Essex? Ah, I see you've captured both of the mutated ones. They are yours to study, to dismantle piece by piece, cell by cell. Nathaniel, don't be fooled by this creature. He is inhuman. Magnify your own suffering a billionfold and you'll have some idea of what he plans for the next five millennia. If nothing else, think of your dear wife and child. Well, I am. I am. So this must be your husband, about whom you spoke with so much affection. A man who has also been labeled obsessed. How do you do it, sir? How do you manage to suffer, to grieve, to persevere, and yet love and be loved by this woman? And remain a good person. I would dearly like to study you more closely, for you seem to possess a capability that I do not. What is that? called not forgetting where you come from, Essex. It's called not forgetting the pain that you've had, but not letting it twist you either. It's called being human. Well, are you or aren't you? Enough! I made you an offer, Essex. I will enhance you in every way. You will be free from the yokes of human morality and mortality. Your body will be strong and malleable, but in return, I demand obedience. And my answer is yes. Page 20. Several levels above, Oscar emerges from the sewer, where the freaks and victims of Essex's work have gathered. Friends, I need your help. 
Instead of helping, the men begin punching Oscar. That's enough help for you, Oscar. Get him! Okay, lads, I I know you hate me, but uh, you was treated like animals, just like me when I was a kid. But those two people in there, they helped us. They didn't have to, but they did. And it was them that got you out of Millbury House, and that got you out your cages. It was them that helped us stop living like animals. But if we turn our backs on them now, we'll still be animals, cages or no cages. Hootie and that devil would have won. I, I'm just a kid. And, and I know that Oscar's right. You tell him, Danny boy. There'll still be other prisoners down there too, suffering like you was. But what can we do? We can start fighting back. What are we waiting for? Pages 21 through 23. Meanwhile, the plague percolates slowly in a chamber of Apocalypse's stronghold. Its lethal ingredients are designed to paralyze the higher evolved functions of the brain, needing only a touch of sinister genius to be complete. And the man known as Nathaniel Essex willingly undergoes a harrowing transformation. Wires and tubes tear into his flesh, sending catalysts of mutation into the very building blocks of his being. And he allows himself to think of Rebecca and his dead family, to feel levels of pain he has hitherto hitherto avoided, for he knows that soon he will lose all capacity for such feeling. As a sea mollusk slowly evolves a shell to protect itself from harm, so will Essex develop this metaphorical shell to protect himself from such agony. Finally, the preparations are complete. The final stage ensues. But first, as you shed your old self, you must also lose your old name and choose a new one. There is no doubt, no hesitation. He remembers the last word that his dear Rebecca spoke to him. Sinister. So be it. Nathaniel Essex is dead. Sinister is born. Behold the mark of apocalypse. Know you are forever branded. By the time I return, Mr. Sinister will be working on perfecting the scourge, and the world as you know it will be in terminal upheaval. As Apocalypse leaves, the sewer resounds with the awful screams of the man who was Nathaniel Essex, as the last vestiges of his humanity are torn from his soul. And Scott Summers, knowing he has failed to turn the course of destiny, puts in a superhuman effort to burn away the material around his eyes. Scott! Tried to blast through it with everything I've got. It's no use. This helmet, it's made of ruby quartz. Scott! Oscar and the freaks, they're tearing the marauders apart. Suddenly, blazing rays scream through the sewer. Cyclops's optic blasts strafe the alien stronghold, burning away the fetters that contain Jean Grey. Free? How? Soon as Oscar and his pals attacked it, stronghold went into defense mode, and the helmet pulled itself away. The marauders have vanished. And we still have a few hours. To find and destroy Apocalypse. First, Jane, sigh link with me. Let me see through your eyes. I need to see this. The man who has done so much. 
to bring us and others so much suffering. He's in there, halfway between Essex and Sinister, between man and monster. What can we do? Scott, the chamber, it's opening. Page 24. The normal crowds gather at the end of elegant Pall Mall, famous for its many exclusive gentlemen's clubs. Running from Whitehall to what might be seen as the center of the empire, where a raised flag reveals that the inhabitants are at home, Buckingham Palace, London residents of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, whose railings are no protection against the power of the one sometimes known as Ensabanur, for today the king and the queen and king die, and tomorrow the age of apocalypse is born. Wow. Be concluded. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Hey, Ooh. not worry, lover. It'll take a lot more than them to come between me and you. Don't worry, lover. <laughs> yeah, I love I love that a lot of X-Men comics just assume that people ever talk like that. <laughs> if somebody <laughs> if somebody was talking to me and they were just like, hello, lover, I'd be like, are we just are we doing bits tonight? Is that like <laughs> that was that was the best line for sure. That it sounds like what Gene would actually say though. So <laughs> well, yeah, because Gene I, I love Gene's dialogue towards the end here when she's talking to a Cyclops where it's just like every other word is Scott and Scott. He's free. Scott. Where? Scott. No, I mean, what? Apocalypse is also talking about that he's going to control people through breeding. So. Yeah, yeah. Apocalypse Cyclops was first on line one. This was, I'm getting <laughs> hammered really hard. Ung. Uh, I Arturo, oh, yeah. I was eating metaphorical popcorn through your long monologue. Yep. Oh, my yeah, that was God. Good. That was really good. I want. Was, I wanted uh, to say that that's it with Apocalypse. Is he always talks like after I haven't seen anybody for a long time, and I go to a party, and people are like, <laughs> "Hey," and you're just like, "Oh yeah, totally." Like I'm up to like all this plans and doing stuff, and then you just like monologue for 15 minutes, and then you're like, "I should go. I should go yeah. back to my house." <laughs> I'm working on a. New, I'm working on a new thing. I've been going <laughs> out. I've been doing a lot of stuff. I'm making a new Golgotha. Right. <laughs> <laughs> life is great uh demanda in which character do you see most yourself reflected oscar <laughs> cootie or daniel i mean none of these i mean madam sanctity is definitely more of my <laughs> i i just i just get thrown it i i um when when i was in uh the tempest a few years ago there was a. Uh, there's like the nobles who get stranded on the island and some of them are never mentioned by name, but they still get named in the program or like, like in the name of characters, but they're never named on stage. So, but they're, but they're, so, when someone's talking about everyone, they name like the people who they, they name a couple of them and then they say, and the others. So the, my characters are, and the others. <laughs> Alicia. I, I consider it the, the cootie tremble ensemble. Yes. yes. All yes. wrapped up in Demanda. <laughs> uh, Alicia, what was uh, Rebecca Essex going through in this uh, particular episode? Yeah, Bravo. Rebecca, you got your uh, you got your tell Cosette I love her and I'll see her when I wake moment <laughs> as you die. <laughs> on her on her dying breath, Rebecca was like, listen, Nathaniel, I'm not taking your shit anymore. I'm Ooh, done shit. with you. I don't love you. You're a monster. Get away from me. I'm dying because of you. This is all <laughs> it's all bullshit. I, I have that. so I have so much respect for somebody who uses their dying words to be like, and I don't forgive you. Blah. Yeah. You, yes. you. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she gives him his name. Yeah. 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 You're nothing uh, but a 
asshole, and then she dies. You're yeah. a sinister <laughs> little Mr. bitch, asshole. Essex. That's how Apocalypse got that big A. <laughs> uh so alicia that's it for rebecca essex until mother superior uh what have you learned about this woman mother, mother righteous I, that's what i meant mother righteous mother superior is a captain america lady don't for don't worry about her uh, what have i learned well it's interesting to think about like the end of their relationship and the fact that she doesn't like love him she doesn't love him she's like Listen, when I married you, I didn't love you. I just had to do it. Then I started to love you and it was good. And now I hate you. So interesting to think that like he built Mother Righteous in Rebecca's image. But like, I think it's more so like what he wanted Rebecca to be. So it makes me think a lot about her character now and like how does she actually have any of the actual Rebecca in her or does she only have this like twisted idea of what Essex wanted Rebecca to be after she decided to tell him the truth, you know? Yeah. Is so, she the uh, is she the goblin queen to Rebecca Rebecca Essex? Right, exactly. Oh, yeah. Uh I'm just picturing Sarah Century walking up and down the road rehearsing Scott. Scott. No, Scott. It was like it was always my inner monologue, and now I get to say it out loud. <laughs> oh, lovely. Uh, uh, Justin, what did uh, what did Nathaniel Essex go through in this episode? Some emotions. He actually felt some stuff. We broke through the monster a little bit just to become more of a monster in the end. But no, it was it was fun. I honestly, whenever I read a character this continuously, like he's living in my head right now, and that's not a good place for him. <laughs> Get out of there, <laughs> Arturo. Have you tried your apocalypse voice in bed yet? <laughs> not yet not yet but um i've been mainlining x-men the animated series apocalypse cometh and like shout out to x-men the animated series for yeah. like some of the greatest voice acting in yep. the history of animation <laughs> yeah. yep yeah. all of them are so incredible um, and I'm it's still how I say, hear the the characters in my yeah. head. I, I read every Wolverine line, every Wolverine line as Cal Dodd, <laughs> and I always have. It's so good. I, I, I was just going to say, uh, also, apparently Nathaniel Essex is either super fast or can teleport, because he is getting all around fucking yeah. London really quickly <laughs> when there is no public transportation. He's got like a marauder to ride. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how how big could London be? <laughs> that that's part of his villain villain origin is the there was no public transit. <laughs> Mine too. Do you guys know any couples in real life that are like sugary sweet with each other all the time, and you're just like, because I can think hey, of that's that's me and Nathan. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> actually, actually, yeah, people hate to be around us. No, great, but it's adorable. You guys are like adorable. But we yeah. podcasted on a podcast together for like uh, 200 episodes. I don't know how anybody listened, but I had a fun time. <laughs> You're just saying each other's names with affection. Don't don't worry, <laughs> lover. No one will get between us. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do a little bit of Scott and Gene at home. So, uh, for those that have not read this series before, Apocalypse literally attacks the Queen of England in the next issue, which is fucking great. <laughs> so it's a pretty good time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you... Victoria, Victoria was insane. 
So I I, I fell into a bit of a uh, British monarchy uh, like wormhole yes. for a while because I it's, it started with me last summer seeing six for the first yep. time, and then I I just like fell into a hole. Queen Victoria. She kept having kids because she was lonely. And yeah. every time one of her daughters got married, which she hated when they got married, she made the next one in line, like, be her personal assistant and, like, kept them at home and they were not allowed to leave. Kind of like sinister, actually, right? Yeah, like, like, like completely, completely crazy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, l- listen, I-, I love the, like, Apocalypse, like, Okay, you guys are murdered. It's the age of apocalypse now. Like, <laughs> not so fast, Demanda. I'm just wondering what the back of your what's it looks like. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and Jean's uh, like, shut just, up. <laughs> just like Alyssa Edwards. That is my secret. <laughs> There's a lot of like almost seemingly clever or intentional lines in this if only because like sinister at one point is literally like singing the lyrics to if i could turn back time by share a little bit (laughs) if he could just find a highway we get a we get a time immemorial which is very celine of course memorial shout out to peter milligan for uh squeezing in two hitherto's in one issue impressive <laughs> also Wait. in a borning i feel like i read I i've been i've been reading so much fucking like 60s thor sorry i, I forget how much i can swear on this you show but, <laughs> yeah I, anyway i've been reading so much thor and fantastic four from the 60s and i feel like i have heard the word a borning like 70 times this week and so when it came up in this i was like man again was it was it just three days ago we were reading this count did you say a borning then too God. that is crazy i think yeah, i have a, a pretty decent big vocabulary and i literally had to look up a borning to make sure it wasn't a typo or something i'm like oh things are getting aborned yeah but you've heard it like multiple times this week that's crazy thanks a lot in the lotto thanks a lot gene gray for teaching apocalypse that he needs to develop an immunity to telepathy (laughs) right nice gene gene just walking through life as like i have to do something shut up everyone and then like being like oh i hope that apocalypse doesn't understand that i have mental powers and then uses it against us decades in the future and it's just like well he's going to gene Whoops. he's going to it's also great <laughs> that he's now impervious to psychops's optic blasts you don't yeah. can't waste that it's like the board has made it worse Every five seconds, Gene is like, and we've got to stop Apocalypse. And it's like, thanks for keeping us on point, Gene. Like, we're doing all this other stuff. We're taking a little stroll down the history of eugenics. And then Gene's like, wait a second, we've got to stop this. And it's like, you're right. We should stop it. (laughs) The other sinister. The other transcendent moment, and I laughed out loud, was uh, the horse's hooves reflect on the pain. Oh Rebecca, Rebecca, <laughs> and then Justin, Rebecca, Rebecca, <laughs> Rebecca. I loved, I loved Charles Darwin <laughs> taking the moment to completely disown social Darwinism for a second. Somebody oh, literally just goes, hey, won't that some like, capitalist that? totally abuse your theories in the future? And he's like, it's not my fault. Yeah, if what? you want to read things into my theories, then that's on you, society. He's like, and yes. it's just like, well, <laughs> Listen, uh, you all know you, how the Bible works. <laughs> what do you need from the conclusion of this story? Uh, we're going to do one more recording. What do you need for this story to end in a satisfactory way? Mm. <laughs> I'm going to need Cyclops to give a lot more genes because I'm hearing a lot yeah. of Scots and I'm not mm. hearing enough genes. 
I, I'm going to need <laughs> Apocalypse to fight Queen Victoria. Full <laughs> <laughs> well, Victoria to fight back. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to need Jean to just check this whole thing off of her to-do list because that's yeah. what it all feels like for her. She's like, Scott, it's just a day that ends with Y and we've got to defeat Apocalypse and then we've got to go 100 years in the future and then 100 plus five years into the past plus then 20 years ago and you're just like Jean, 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 Jean. Um, speaking of which, has anyone checked the clock? Because we had 48 hours in the past. I'm not sure where <laughs> we are. But now it's only a few hours. <laughs> Fucking Madam Sanctity, man. <laughs> um, Help us Sanctity. For, like for real. She's got like a, a broadcast deal with Mojo. Like this is like a live streaming Big Brother. <laughs> for sure. Um, I, I'm gonna need uh Daniel to uh reveal what his importance is because as we all know when there's like a small child that you know potentially might be a mutant and like they've been around for a couple issues and haven't done anything yet it's like (laughs) hey kid what are we gonna do yeah daniel got his voice so use it resurrect (laughs) daniel before krakoa is over (laughs) (laughs) uh justin i need sinister to go full villain and not accept any of the blame as his own fault. <laughs> guaranteed. That seems legit. Pretty, pretty guaranteed. Pretty it, it would be really nice if Scott and Jean also created at least one more predestination paradox. Yeah, 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 yeah. Since they but, hate them, it's so funny how much they hate them as a couple and over like the decades of X-Men history. They're the only just people constantly who do see it. Them. They're like, no, I don't want to believe that we're meant to be together just because of these 17 things we did that yeah. made us be meant to be together. <laughs> you like father a Gina, child that ends up becoming their grandfather, you know. <laughs> Jean, I defy fate gray. Listen, maybe <laughs> if she was defying fate a little less, she'd be happier. You know who has never caused some weird predestination paradox that has fucked up his life? Colossus. Maggot, <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, next issue, we do get a lot of genes and we get a lot of Scots and we get God. a lot of the age of apocalypse, like five <laughs> times he says that. So it'll be uh, it'll be fun conclusion. I just want to say I love that apocalypse is manage, managing expectations. Like when they're like, <laughs> oh, are you going to lead this? He's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to get you all riled up. I'm, I'm going to take a fire. nap. You guys do what it has to be done. I'll be back. This has been uh, delicious as per usual. I love hanging out with you. I'm having so much fun doing these scripts. Highlight of my damn day. Uh, We're going to release this on uh, November 20th with the episode that is out that week, uh, which will be on my show. Fantastic Four number 104. Uh, 70s Magneto, we got a couple appearances left before we wrap up his era and turn him into a baby. Uh, that uh, episode features Jay Holtham, Sean Damian Hill, and Stephanie Williams. It's uh, lovely. It's already recorded. Uh, as we are wrapping up, let everyone know where uh, they can find each of you online. And is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, let's go uh, Arturo and then Steve. Hi, guys. Um, uh, Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. I have nothing really to plug, and I'll leave it at that. I won't mention the Wheel of Time, but if you stream the Wheel of Time, you know, that's not a bad use of your time. (laughs) Uh, Steve. Uh, Yes, hello. It's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky. And if you have a social media site, I'm probably on it. Not on any of the Facebook ones, though. Not on any of the ones this show uses, unfortunately. So. 
You can find me at Howdy Duda on those other sites. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Uh, I do, in fact, have something to plug instead of a jazz album this week, uh, which is that by the time this comes out, and given the fact that it does seem like there's been a concrete deal reached for SAG-AFTRA after all this time and the strikes are over, yeah. or at least ending, uh, our long theoretical podcast Trek Static about all things Star Trek will be eventually starting up. If you want to hear two huge queers talk about all the things they love on Star Trek, mostly talking probably about Beverly's dating habits. That's going to be a lot of that. <laughs> Please tune in to us. We'll be found everywhere the podcast can be found. It'll be called Trek Static and uh, we're going to get that finally spun up. It's been too long. Wonderful. Uh, Demanda and then Sarah. Hi, I'm Demanda Martini. You can find me across all of the social medias at Demanda Martini, D-M-A-N-D-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. By the time this comes out, I am taking a little bit of a personal time for Thanksgiving because I love to eat. And um, after after that, uh, in December, um, I have two uh, two really big kind of gigs. I'm going to be doing another competition. Hopefully this one's venue doesn't close if I win. Um, but I'm going to be doing a ballads competition, which is it's uh, it's a roulette style where I'm going to have to learn nine songs and just battle it out. And it's going to be all roulette. So we'll find out what songs I get to sing. Uh, I'm also the oldest um, contestant and most of the songs are like 90s power ballads. So I'm pretty <laughs> pretty confident. Um, and then uh, we're wrapping up uh, the year with my uh, cabaret, Eleanor's New Deal Cabaret, which again has been going on for six years. Uh, we're doing uh, another holiday show. It's called Home with the Holla Gals. Uh, it's me and a bunch of female presenting people uh, singing some holiday nonsense. So uh, come find me on social media. Would love to see you in person. Uh, see you guys out there. And I'm Sarah Century of sarahcentry.com. You can find me at sarahcentry.com. And I have a newsletter I highly recommend that people sign up for because I talk about my pet rabbits a lot and it's cute. But I also talk about other things that are relevant. I'm on some social medias, but if you find me on them, then that's on you. Like, it has nothing to do with me. And then finally, Justin and Alicia Wilder, who just hit their motherfucking 200th episode. Hey! Yeah. Where'd you go? Uh, I'm Alicia. I'm Justin. We're the Ex-Wife Podcast. You can find us on the internet at the Ex-Wife Podcast. T-H-E-X-W-I-F-E as in X-Men, not former wife. And as Chad said, yeah, we just did our 200th episode. And um, in true throwback Ex-Wife Podcast, style i knew absolutely nothing that was going to happen on the episode and justin playing the whole thing and i was surprised the whole time and we talk about an older comic that i never read before and it's really fun so check it out you got a good job else? justin good job yeah. really- isn't that the best alicia i'm so jealous i i want to have that experience again I'll just it ask me on to talk about something I don't know about, please. It yeah. is great. I was thoroughly surprised and also didn't even, like I said, didn't even know what was happening. And then Justin whipped out like TV monitor and I got really excited. <laughs> Action figures. It was good. There were songs. I, I love that. I wish it would happen more. I've been on a couple where they're like, yeah, it's going to be a surprise. And I'm like, oh yeah, don't tell me nothing. Tell me nothing. <laughs> Get some uh, stupid responses. 
And then lastly, I keep my own social media private because I got kiddos, but you can find Grimalk and Lane, Grimalk and underscore Lane on Instagram. Also search for me on Discord or say hi on Insta and I'll get you the link. Uh, the next episode coming out immediately after this is our monthly trial. This is the trial of Shiro Yoshida uh, with an all-star incredible cast uh, all about Sunfire. Uh, the episode coming out next week is Amazing Adventures number nine, the worst Magneto story. And uh, my special guest on that episode is uh, CF Villa. It's, uh, it's great. We have a great time with it. Uh, as we are releasing this episode on the 20th, I will be uh, on the beaches of Puerto Vallarta for my last day and returning from vacation. Uh, <laughs> I hope you had a, a good time listening. Thank you, everyone, for the ongoing support. Uh, thank you, all of you, for being here for this reading. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.